Welcome to Tactical Breakdown. On today's episode, we're talking TACMED, training standards, mental and physical health, and everything in between. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown podcast on the Islet Network. Your number one resource for law enforcement training. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, back at it here on Tactical Breakdown. Another episode for you today. Really excited because we're bringing back an old friend of the podcast, Dr. Mike Simpson. If you haven't uh, checked out the episode that we did with Mike back a few years ago, uh, I believe it's episodes 10 and 11, really dove down the rabbit hole on tactical medicine, uh, TECC, TCCC, and, and a lot of things like that. So if you haven't checked that out, please go ahead and do so. And to just so you're tracking on this, to make sure that you're not missing any episodes that we're putting out there, Make sure to subscribe or follow the podcast on your favorite podcast player, and that way you stay up to date on everything that we're doing here at the Tactical Breakdown and at the ILET Network. So like I said, my guest today is Dr. Mike Simpson. He is former U.S. Special Forces. He is currently a doctor of emergency medicine in Texas and uh, is just a phenomenal source of knowledge and information, especially when it comes to tactical medicine, but everything in between. Um, you know, this episode, Mike and I go... We go so many different directions. We start with TACMED and we start about talk about training standards. And by the end of it, we're talking about mental and physical health and then talking about some jujitsu. We really go all over the place with this. So hopefully you'll enjoy the ride with us here today. And um, one thing, and I think I mentioned it in the podcast, but if you haven't checked out Mind of the Warrior, it is a podcast that Mike has been running since before Tactical Breakdown existed. It is a phenomenal resource. You should check it out. You can go to the uh, ILET Network podcast page. It's listed right in there. Or go to your podcast player, wherever you're listening to this podcast on right now. Pause this. Search Mind of the Warrior and make sure to subscribe to his podcast. I definitely recommend it and I guarantee that you're going to get something out of it. So make sure to do that. All right, let's jump into this episode with Mike and uh, here we go. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode here on the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. With me today, um, uh, and if you're a fan of the show um, and you've been around for a long time, you'll definitely know this name, Dr. Mike Simpson. He was, Mike, I believe you were like our guest for like our 10th episode, and I think it was a long one, so I think we split it up, um, and that was back in, in 2019, I think yeah. we recorded that. It's been a long time. It seems um, even longer ago, doesn't it? It seems like forever <laughs> ago. Yeah, exactly. And uh, just really excited. Um, you know, we're recording this. It's the December 30th, 2021. So right at the end of the year, uh, I know that um, for anybody who doesn't already follow Mind of the Warrior podcast, um, you can get that on the ILET podcast platform page um, on our network, or you can just go to Mind of the Warrior, search that on any one of your podcast platforms. You can find it. It's absolutely phenomenal. Mike's the guy who's been running that since the beginning. And, um, you know, Mike, I'm just, I'm just honored to have you back here, brother. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks. The honor is mine, man. I appreciate you having me back on. Yeah. Well, it's always fun to, it's always fun to have these conversations with fellow podcasters, right? It's, <laughs> it's kind of one of those ones where, you know, at the beginning we're like, well, what are we talking about? I don't know. Just talk about whatever <laughs> stuff um, we, we talked about this, but there's, there's certain topics that we always get asked depending on what your specialty is. Obviously mm -hmm. you're an actual practicing medical doctor. So um, I can just only imagine the questions that you've been fielding over the last two years. Mm -hmm. um, but 
what I want to get into is I want to let people just hear a little bit about your background, um, because that's what we're going to be diving into during this talk. So can you just give everybody the quick Coles notes of, uh, of who you are and, and what it is that you do? Sure. Uh, so I'm a doctor of emergency medicine. Um, I uh, found my way to practicing as a physician kind of late in life. Um, I had uh, prior to my journey to become a physician, I had 17 years enlisted uh, in the military, all of it in the special operations community. I started out in the Ranger Battalion, uh, did four years there as an infantryman, then uh, made the decision to go to special forces selection, went SF uh, initially as a demolitions guy, uh, a special forces engineer sergeant, then became a special forces medic. That's when I found out that I enjoyed medicine uh, and that I had a future in it and uh, decided to go to medical school. So did applied, uh, finished my undergraduate while I was on active duty and uh, applied to medical school, was accepted and went to the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences uh, in Bethesda, Maryland, graduated medical school and was placed in an emergency medicine residency program, finished residency and got really the, the most choice assignment you can get out of residency as an ER physician, which is the Joint Medical Augmentation Unit at JSOC at Fort Bragg. Did six years in the unit, uh, deployed five times, and then uh, hang, hung up my spurs and retired. I was the uh, the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Fort Hood, Texas, when I retired in 2016. So I retired with a total of 32 years in uniform. Wow, man. Well, first of all, thank you for your service. I know thank you. Um, you got that quite a bit, but I appreciate what you do. And, you know, last time we jumped on this call, it was we the last time we did a podcast, it was very TAC med heavy. That was kind of the the concepts, right? We talked T Tri C, we talked mm -hmm. TECC and and your involvement in the development of those programs. Mm -hmm. Um uh we talked about med kits. We talked about I remember we went off on some goddamn tangent about decompression needles. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's coming up again. That was a, that was an Instagram debate this week. So that still hasn't been sorted out. <laughs> oh man, it's the decompression. People are, people are still arguing, still arguing talk, over decompression needles. Yeah, talking IFAX and everything. You know, it's 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 interesting. We also talked about tourniquets. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, actually, I have a, here. I have an initial question for you. Sure. Have you seen the new rapid stop tourniquets? Uh, yeah, yeah. You talking about they're uh, they're like a um, it's a ratchet. Yeah, they're like a day glow yellow. Um, I have I've I've seen black ones. Um, okay. the ones that I got to play with were black, but I, they may have them in yellow. But it's essentially a um a quick application ratchet system where mm -hmm. it slides on and it's literally like some ratchet pumps. And um, I was able to apply it to myself in about eight seconds. Oh, that's um, that's good. And I was like, that's phenomenal. Now mm -hmm. my and I was wondering if you heard about it because my initial question to them. And I know they're going through the process of all of the testing and accreditation and, and mm -hmm. having like the College of Surgeons sign off, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, my question to them was, there's a reason why, you know, uh, cats and rats and, and softies and all these have been, they've been put through the ringer. And we know that they work in the most austere environments, no matter what happens, it's going to work. Mm -hmm. um, with this, my question to them was, well, if it's a ratchet system, mm -hmm. two concerns. Concern A um, it's some type of polymer. Um, mm -hmm. so what happens in like, for example, right now I'm in Winnipeg. I know you're in Texas. Um, it's minus 43 something with wind chill right now. Mm. Um, so not very warm. 
Um, and if you were to have that thing and left it outside for a day and a half in mm-hmm. a kit bag or something, and then you need to use it, what does that look like? Does it actually right. work or does it just snap into a billion pieces? And then obviously on the flip side of that is if you're in a very warm environment and Texas, Arizona, or somewhere overseas in the sandbox, and that thing's sitting out on a tarmac in the sun, um, is it still going to be functional when it's 100 plus degrees? Um, those were That was one question. And my second question was, if it's a ratchet system, what happens when you get debris in the ratchet system? Right. Uh, and that, that is a concern. So the, I mean, the more mechanical stuff that you have in a tourniquet, the more points, uh, potential points of failure that you have. I mean, that's, it only makes sense. So like, uh, let's talk, we'll talk about the, the SWAT tourniquet, which, you know, has its pluses and minuses, right? It doesn't have a winless, um, but it, it has no moving parts. So when you're thinking about potential failure points, um, that's probably the simplest that you can go. Right. And then when you move into the arena of your simple, basic windless tourniquets, like the cat, which everybody's familiar with, uh, the soft T, uh, the TMT, these are all, you know, pretty basic designs. I mean, they're a basic windless design, right? So there's fewer points of failure. The more mechanism that you involve, the more potential points of failure and, and you bring up debris, um, and that that is an issue, especially for military tourniquets. I think we're, we're kind of at a point now where I think we're going to start to see a split in the field even more so about what tourniquets are might you, you're going to have t- tourniquets that are ideal for untrained civilians. You're going to have tourniquets that are ideal for, uh, you know, guys, the EDC crowd, you know, the, the guys that are probably watching this podcast that are going to put some level of practice in it, but maybe haven't been to uh, a formal uh, long-term type training. Uh, then you're going to have what law enforcement carries. And then when you're, you're going to have what the military carries, and they're all going to probably be a little bit different. Um, it is important when you talk about the temperature variations, if we're talking about a tourniquet that's going to be used by the military, especially as we look forward into uh, possible peer and near peer conflicts, there, there is a, a, a really decent likelihood. If we, if we look, okay, look at what's going on with Russia and Crimea and the Ukraine, look at what's going on with China and possible conflict uh, someplace like Taiwan. You look at North Korea. We're talking about a lot of places in the northern reaches. We're talking about a lot of places where there's potential for extreme cold weather. So unlike the previous conflict where we were only worried about heat, now we're going to be worried about really both. So it, any any piece of, a, a, of kit that uh, wants to make good inroads uh, into the U.S. military, into U.S. DOD, and into NATO, you're talking about temperature variances of, you know, from somewhere around the neighborhood of minus 40 all the way up to 122 degrees. And I'm talking Fahrenheit here because that's what I'm used to using. Um, although minus 40 is exactly the same in both. I don't know if you knew that. That's minus right. 40 Celsius and yeah. minus 40 Fahrenheit. Yeah. That's so where, the, that's where they cross. Yeah, now you <laughs> right. know how cold it is here. Yeah, really cold. Anything anything below zero, it's just really fucking cold. So, but uh, oh, don't be the, a baby. The, the, those are those are important things. Those are you know uh, how it's going to do in long term storage because things are going to get shipped over, like you say, in connexes, uh, in kicker pallets, and cardboard boxes, and they're going to sit for long periods of time. And if they can't withstand 
those extreme temperature variations, then they're going to be of no use in the conflict. Now that might not necessarily be true if somebody, somebody in Oklahoma buys a tourniquet and they're carrying it on their, on their kit. Uh, or carrying it in their pocket every day, it might not be as important. So again, I think we're going to see a lot more uh, tourniquets that come out because now that we've established that, okay, tourniquet, tourniquets are good. Now I think we're going to start to see a lot more branching in, uh, you know, cause, cause maybe a TMT or a soft T or a cat isn't the right thing for that, you know, 60 year old school teacher with, uh, with, with arthritic hands, maybe that isn't the right thing for her to be carrying, but, uh, you know, it's certainly acceptable for the military and for law enforcement. So I think we're going to, we're going to see more products come out. We're going to see more branching. There's, uh, T triple C said they are getting, they're out of the business of signing off on gear anymore. They're basically going to set guidelines and, and the guidelines are going to be published. And if you say that your thing meets the guidelines, which you're going to have to prove, then that's it's going to be your word against anybody else. But uh, they uh, the TCCC took a lot of flack. They got a, accused of unjustly accused of maybe picker, picking winners and losers and some other stuff. A lot of it was just sour grapes and it was unfair. But their response to it was, yeah, you know what? We just don't want to be be in this business anymore. So we're not going to endorse a specific mm-hmm. crate kit. We're not going to endorse a specific tourniquet or set of tourniquets. So that very that last list that you saw of TCCC, Committee on TCCC approved tourniquets that came out, uh, I believe it was in 2019. That's the last one. You're never going to see that again. They're mm-hmm. going to publish guidelines. You know, a crate kit should have this. A pressure bandage should have this. A tourniquet should have this. And that's it. And they're they're not going to they're not going to name products by name anymore. Well, that's, and that's, that's a whole nother conversation like that's Cause that happens in law enforcement all the time. And and this was a discussion that we had. It was a use of force conversation um, with somebody else that I had, but the idea was in their policies and procedures, a, an agency actually wrote in their policy procedures. You must use, um, they have their Glock handgun. They have their, their taser um, hmm. X7 or whatever it was. And, and, you know, your ASP baton, Mm-hmm. Um, and what it did without them thinking about it was they locked in a brand mm-hmm. to the policy. Yeah. So just because something was better or could have been better or, or been exchanged, they basically locked themselves in, which was not a good idea. Um, yeah. No, definitely that, I mean, that could d- very easily happen in, in this scenario as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally could. I'm interested. So the, the, you made an interesting point about the, the use, like who would be using the tourniquet. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, um, cause I know when I remember our last conversation, you had said like, I know you carry tourniquets all over the place, right. Mm-hmm. In your cargo pockets, in your bags and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you influenced me. So I have, uh, on all my backpacks, I have a, a tourniquet on there now and, and just something where it's easy access. Um, but one of the ones that's interesting to me, because when you had said who's using it, um, it's also who is it going to be used on? Mm-hmm. Um, and so my thought was, you know, for example, the the only like the the rat tourniquets, mm-hmm. um, somebody turned me up. They said, why don't you have these? They're like, you have small kids. Mm-hmm. They're like, good luck getting a, a cat on your four year old on their arm. It's not going to work. Yeah. Um, and so with those, it's like, it's easier to apply on a child. Mm-hmm. The, the rat tourniquets are because they're, it's literally just a, uh, an elastic that you wrap around. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that there is 
there is a need to carry multiple types of tourniquets for multiple types of applications. No, a lot of people do that, and I'm not a fan of that. And the, and well, the now re- you make me sound stupid, so, Mike. No, no, God no, no. damn it, it! You should have stopped me before I started. I'm so, I, don't. You're not. You're not stupid. It's not. It, this is because it's it's a great question, and there's thousands of people out there doing exactly what you're doing. And I, I, it's I'm not condemning it out of hand. Um, uh, probably the 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 bigger issue that I have is I've seen tactical medics who say. I carry four cats and two soft T wides. And like, it's like, what, what, why are you doing? You know, why? Uh, and, and nobody can ever give me a good answer. Now I, I understand the thought process behind the, the pediatric slash the canine uh, issue. Right. But here's the issue. Here's the, here's the, here's the deal. All, all of the windless tourniquets will, will go to a much smaller limb circumference than people give them credit for. So they will work um, in most cases. And guess what? Here, here's the thing that nobody wants to talk about. Uh, on a four-year-old, you don't really need a tourniquet. And here's the reason you don't need a tourniquet. Because it's not that their, their uh, arterial pressure is somewhat lower than yours or mine. Uh, but not to not so significantly that that's what makes the difference. What makes the difference is limb circumference. The reason you need the amount of pressure that you need is because of limb circumference. So if I've got an operator who squats 405 pounds and has some big Earl Campbell sized thighs, for those of you that remember her, who Earl Campbell was um, running back for the Houston Oilers, um, Guy, I'm I'm so dated. I'm talking about a football team that's not even in Doesn't existence even exist anymore. anymore. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was the <laughs> it was the Houston Oilers. Then it was the Tennessee Oilers, and then it became the Tennessee Titans. And now we have the Houston Texans, which is a totally different team. Um, but basically, what I'm getting at is, if you got a really big, meaty thigh, like a thigh almost as big around as most people's waist, you need a lot more pressure to overcome that pressure. Uh, so think of it this way: so if I if I hand you a straw, right? And I say, okay, blow air through the straw. And you go to blow air through the straw. And now, uh, uh, while trying to blow air through it, I want you to pinch that straw off. You can very easily pinch that straw off with two fingers, right? It's not not even challenging to do so. Now, I take that same exact straw, and I drill a hole in a yoga foam roller. And I put the straw in the middle of that yoga foam roller. And I have you do the same thing. You're blowing air through that straw. And now I say, okay, now squeeze the yoga foam roller and and, and kink off that straw. Now you're going to need both hands and a lot more finger strength to do so because you're overcoming all of the mass of that foam roller. Now imagine changing that yoga foam roller to muscle tissue. So now it's even more dense because that's what we found out. There's a, a the Sentinel article on, on all of this was written by a lady by the name of Piper Wall. And she found out that thigh circumference was played a huge uh, part in this. And it, it wasn't just like like a fat person with a thigh of say, uh, you know, twenty inches versus the muscular person with the thigh of twenty inches. The muscular person you had to put more pressure on them to overcome that pressure. Now, so let's go back and look at what a pediatric thigh or a pediatric arm is. They don't have that much musculature, mm-hmm. so you don't need as much pressure. And typically what that means is you can, if, if you carry uh, an emergency bandage, uh, an Israeli bandage with you, right. you can yeah. put that typically, you know, wherever that child got injured, you can just put it over there and make it a pressure bandage. And that's probably going to provide enough pressure 
to overcome that. Um, and they won't necessarily need a tourniquet. The instances of children needing tourniquets um, is really low. Number one, because anatomically they don't need it for the reason that I described. Uh, and number two, they're a lot less likely to get hit in the limbs and something data that's been coming out. You know, we, we did a great job of getting everybody guys like you to carry tourniquets, but that's not a stopping point. That's a starting point because the fact of the matter is, um, in these, in these civilian mass shooter scenarios and most civilian, uh, uh, traumatic accidents, it's not limb hemorrhage that's going to be the issue it's it's going to be thoracic injuries abdominal injuries so now uh, understanding how to address those understanding how to use a vented chest seal versus an occlusive chest seal treat an entrance wound and an exit wound this gets us back into the decompression needle debate and everything else that's equally if not more important because i can tell you in all these mass shooter incidents that we've had in the u.s uh reed smith who's a former chair of the committee on tecc did a great, uh, great article. I'm usually not a fan of meta analyses, but he did a he did a, a great meta analyses on a bunch of these uh, mass shooter scenarios, and he found out that nobody in the civilian world was dying from limb hemorrhage. It was all from thoracic injuries. So that so we do need to carry tourniquets because if you do see a life threatening limb hemorrhage, that's a way that you can address that, treat it quickly keep that person alive because they can, they can die in six minutes or less from that mm. penetrating limb hemorrhage, but that's not the end all be all. So, um, if I had a four-year-old, um, I would be more concerned about, uh, you know, if, if we're talking about just day-to-day -day injuries, like outside of the scope of, uh, uh, of a mass shooter type scenario, head injuries are what is the, is the biggest killer in a lot of little kids. Uh, you know, if they get struck by a car, if they get, you know, if they get knocked down, they fall downstairs because they got a big old grape up here, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of surface area to it. And they tend to lead with their head and everything. They're always looking at stuff and, uh, and leaning forward into stuff. They haven't quite developed uh, enough, a lifetime of getting their ass kicked to know that I should be backing away, crouching down and putting my hands up. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so, uh, they're, they're pretty likely to get head injuries. Um, for that reason and that reason alone, I, I'm not a huge fan of carrying multiple tourniquets because what, people ask me all the time, what's the best tourniquet? And the answer is the best tourniquet is the one you have practiced with and the mm -hmm. one you have on your person. So, so then the question is, can you be proficient with three different types of tourniquets? Are you going to be equally proficient with all three types of tourniquets? And if the answer is no, then you know maybe you carry... You know, I, I carry a windless tourniquet. I'm currently carrying, uh, you know, I was a cat person. Now I've, I've kind of migrated over to the TMT. So I'm a TMT person. Now I keep typically on my person. will carry a TMT. Uh, I'll carry, uh, a package of, uh, of chest seals and I'll carry an, uh, an Israeli emergency bandage. And I feel that I pretty much have everything covered with yeah. that and including pediatric injuries because, um, the, the nice thing about, uh, the uh, emergency bandage as well is if I decide, oh, this is something that needs a tourniquet, um, I can apply that high on the limb and I can use the pressure bar as a windlass. Now it's off label use, but it works. So I, I can essentially use that as a non-pneumatic tourniquet if I have to as well. Hmm. That's fascinating. I mean, I love talking with you cause you always just 
bring up I, you get my mind spinning a million miles a minute on this stuff but that um i think that information is fantastic for everybody to have here and I, I you know the core thing that you said and i know you said this last time we talked is it's it's having practice mm -hmm. on it's not just carrying a tourniquet no anybody can go buy a tourniquet but if you don't know how to apply it yeah and it's yeah it's about as good as a paperweight yeah just carrying is not is not enough it's not a navajo medicine bag that you carry around your neck to to ward off evil right? It's, you have to practice with it. You have to know how to use it. It has to be accessible uh, and it has to be in good condition as well. You know, that's why I tell people by anytime you decide, okay, I'm going to become a tourniquet person, whatever tourniquet you decide on, you're going to buy three of those. And one, you're going to mark, you're going to mark it for training and you're only going to use it for training because if you pre-stress polymer and you pre-stress nylon, uh, it's pre-stressed, which means it can fail. It, it, you've, you're developing failure points at some point when you might need it. And then you're going to have two, one that's one that's accessible in literally in seconds and one that's, you know, deeper in uh, in your individual first aid kit or in your glove box or in your car. Um, but definitely you want to have one on your person that you can access and apply in a matter of 30 seconds at all times. You know, this um, I can't remember who I said this to, but it, so in Canada, so where it's minus 40. Mm -hmm. um we have something called lock de-icer and i don't know mm -hmm. if you've ever heard of this before but it's essentially like an isopropyl alcohol yeah in a little yeah. eyedropper mm -hmm. and you use it to open up because you you what'll happen is it'll snow it'll rain or whatever and then everything freezes mm -hmm. and you got to use the you have to use it to thaw out and clear away the ice from the keyhole so you can actually get your key into your car to open your door right um obviously now with electric vehicles it's all different but um the old, the old, everybody used to buy the lock de-icer at the gas station and keep it in their car. It would go in their glove compartment. <laughs> right. And like, it's, it, that's pretty much the exact uh. same comparison that I drew to, to this conversation, <laughs> which is, you know, it's like, it's, if you don't have it on you, then it's, it's about as good as lock de-icer in your car. Yeah. That's, that's just the way I see 100%, 100%, it. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. That's funny. Um, you brought up mass shooter incidents and, and mass casualty incidents. And, and obviously this is, I mean, I'm a Canadian um, for anybody who's listening to this and you don't know that. Hey, surprise. Um, <laughs> we obviously don't have incidents like this very often. Um, I think mm -hmm. I, I may have spoken with you after we had um, that, um, that mass shooter incident uh, in Halifax or in the East coast here in Canada with the RCMP officer that was killed. Um, and that was kind of like the first one in a long time and has been the only one since. Um, and there's, you know, obviously in the news right now, there's a, a whole bunch of, of school shootings and things like that that are taking place in the U S what is it like, I want to hear your thoughts on this right now. And, and again, I, I guess there's a whole bunch of different topics on this, but you know, staying in, in the lane that we're talking about, um, is there something that police agencies that public safety units and, and things like that, is there something that we're, we're missing or we should be considering that with all the years of experience that you have that you're like, why isn't this something that's being talked about or trained on right now? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's a few things. And the, the problem is there's no, uh, there's not really a unifying body. Right. So, uh, and, and to, to illustrate this point. So, um, after Columbine, it was, it was universally decided in the U S that the policy changed from we, so we used to have uh, in the in the eighties and nineties, if you had some type of active shooter incident at a school, at a mall, in a restaurant, 
all pretty much all rapid response teams, all SWAT teams, all SRTs kind of had the same protocol, which is what they called the clear protocol, containment, long rifle, reaction team, right? So you would identify the location. So this shooting is going on at, at location X. And all right, so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to control ingress and egress. We're going to surround the area. We're going to set up a cordon and we're going to set up a command post. Okay, so that way, you know, whoever the, the, the whoever's doing the evil, they can't get out and, and people to reinforce them can't get in. And, and also looky-loos can't get in and, and get in harm's way. So that's done. Now, now long rifles. So now we need to have eyes on. We need to get a sniper team in an advantageous position. They're giving us real world, uh, 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 in, in real time feedback of what's going on. Um, if you look at the, uh, I went to uh, SWAT sniper school in San Diego and, and actually got to hear the debrief. There was a, back in the eighties, there was a McDonald's shooting that happened in San Diego. And, and basically that's the way it went down is they, is they surrounded, they surrounded it, they controlled it. They put a sniper team on a roof next door and they were able to give real time feedback of, okay, that's, it's a single shooter. This is what he's carrying. He's, he's positioning, he's kind of pacing himself back and forth between the door and the counter. Uh, this is what he's wearing. Um, uh, and then, and then the reaction team. So now that you have that, they can say, okay, the shooters moved to this side of the building. So go, we can go ahead and stack, uh, an entry team on the other side of the building. And when we tell you it's clear, you can go ahead and make entry. Well, after Columbine, that all changed because what we found out is while you were doing that, they're, they're going from room to room, continuing to, to kill people. So that, you know, then, then we came up with what you call the fifth man rule, which is, uh, first four guys show up and they're going to form basically an ad hoc entry team. The fifth person to show up becomes the scene commander until somebody from higher arrives. And then those four are going to go as an entry team and they're going to make entry. And it varies from, from agency to agency. But the thought process being is as soon as we have an element that we can provide security, we're going to move into that structure and we're going to go room to room and we're going to try to mitigate the threat. Um, and that was the standard for years. And everybody knew that, or we thought everybody knew that. And then we had, um, the incident down, uh, in, in, in Broward County, Florida, where they did exactly the opposite. They went back to 1982 era tactics, right? So that's the problem that we're faced with is we think that we've solved a problem, but, if you think of how many tens of thousands of agencies are out there, you know, just uh, so right where I live alone. Right. So I've got, I've got Georgetown police department. I've got Travis County Sheriff's department. I've got a constable. Right. And then right next door, you know, I I've got all the surrounding areas have their own police forces. The next County over Travis County has a different police force. I've got Texas DPS. I've got Texas Rangers. Uh, and everything else in between now add on top of that, we have school, we have these public resource officers in all the schools. So now we're trying, trying to establish standards on a national level for so many people. It's just hard to get everybody on the same sheet of music. So I think where, where we're coming up short is that stand, you know, you want individual agencies to have autonomy. Um, but you also, once you kind of figure out that something works, you want to have as much standardization as possible. So, I think we're doing a pretty good job moving forward of standardizing that response. You know, most pretty much everybody recognized that, you know, Broward County made a huge mistake and ultimately that sheriff uh, paid the price, I believe, and didn't get reelected. Um, 
uh, for, uh, and a lot of other things that went wrong in, in that specific incident. But, you know, n- now moving forward and, and getting everybody trained in TECC, um, my big uh, emphasis, and this is, you know, since, since I've been uh, a member uh, on the advisory board of the, of the ca- committee on t- uh, tactical emergency uh, casualty care, my big push has been to try to push things like field triage down to the law enforcement officer level, because I think triage is, we've been pretending like it's a lot more difficult than it really is. And we've been overcomplicating it for a lot of years. When the fact of the matter is, you can come up with some very simple ways to just kind of very quickly put people into two or three categories. And 90% of the time, you're going to be right. And that's, I came up with what I call the alert triage system. Um, But doing things like that, I mean, it doesn't have to be my system, but, you know, pushing other systems down to the level of the law enforcement officer that I know, you know, I, I would, I would love that to know that no matter where I go in, in the country, if there is a mall shooting and if I see a police officer in, in their cruiser, I know right off the top, you know, without even walking up and talking to him, I know he's got a carbine in the trunk. He's got, he's got, he's either wearing full, full level three body armor, or he at least has it in his vehicle and has access to it. He has a tourniquet on his person. He has an individual first aid kit accessible, and he has a larger mass casualty kit. He's trained in how to use them. He's trained in TECC, trained in some basic triage, and he's trained in basic entry um, so that he is, in effect, uh, an ad hoc QRF when the need arises. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to, uh, you know, right now, unfortunately, we're, we're all over the map. You know, some even you go to a, a, a meeting on the committee on TECC and not everybody in the room even agrees on a lot of things. And this is, you know, people, you have decades, if not hundreds of years of experience in that room, you know, many people have been involved in these events or, or written uh, summaries of these events, you know, lots of combat tours and, and lots of, lots of time in a stack, lots of time behind a gun, lots of time with blood on their hands. And not everybody agrees on how to do things. Not, not everybody in that room will agree if a police officer should carry a decompression needle, not everybody in that room will agree um, that a police officer is equipped to do field triage. Um, and you'll get arguments, you know, from, from the police too. No, that's what we have the, the, the RTF for, you know, and then the whole RTF rescue task force medics discussion versus integrated SWAT medics discussion. That's a whole nother discussion. Um, there, there's no standard. I'm, I'm a medical director for one local SWAT and one state level SRT. Um, there's no standardization at any level on what a SWAT physician means. Like not even, there's not even standardization to say he must be a surgeon or an EM physician or, or something of that nature. There's zero standardization. You know, it's just basically it's, if you got a doctor who's willing to do it, uh, that, that's, that's kind of, that's, that's kind of the biggest hurdle. Right. And, uh, that's probably because none of these positions pay anything, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, we, we, we have a severe lack of standardization and you can't getting people to agree on this. Cause again, you know, I, I, I love all of my brothers and sisters on the TECC committee and, you know, I, I meet with them twice a year and we disagree on a lot of things in the room because, you know, you know, Andy has decades of doing it this way. Reed has decades of doing it this way. Josh has, has decades of doing it this way. I have decades of doing it my way. So we're not going to agree on everything. So it, it's, it's hard to get people to stand up and say, 
all right, we need to agree there's going to be one standard and it's going to be this way. Because now you're talking about hundreds of thousands of SOPs and hundreds of thousands of memorandum of agreement slash memorandum of understanding getting changed across the country and hoping, hoping that there is uh what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, that, that, you know, so, you know, how you, you know, you remember the game we were kids, you know, telephone, mm-hmm. you said, say something to the person next to you, then they said, and it passed down the line. And by the time it gets to the last person, it's changed the same things that happens with policies and information, right? You know, that's, that's why, you know, you still have people arguing over whether or not you can use tourniquets on a two bone compartment or not for just that reason, because, you know, you know, muddling your way through all this information, you know, getting everybody to have a a whole blood program that functions more or less the same, getting everybody to, to be in agreement on what kind type of tourniquets you should carry and where you should carry them. It's a, it's a nightmare, you know, and then you, you add to that, that you'll have a county sheriff somewhere who talks to his brother-in-law who's a dermatologist and his brother-in-law who's a dermatologist says tourniquets, those are a last resort. You'll kill somebody with a tourniquet. Make sure to tell your people to release it every 15 minutes. Cause he's a fucking dermatologist and he doesn't know anything about <laughs> tourniquets. Right? So then that sheriff walks around saying, Oh yeah, my people are not going to carry tourniquets. Cause I talked to my brother-in-law who's a dermatologist uh, even though he went to med school in 1958 and he hasn't practiced in 20 years, but he told me tourniquets are terrible, you know? So uh, the, these are all the mini battles that we're fighting. And, you know, uh, on one hand, uh, I like centralized pa- planning and decentralized execution. And I like all these individual agencies to have their, their own autonomy. Um, so the best that we can hope for is to come out with these recommendations. And then if people follow them, they follow them. And if not, if they choose not to, they choose not to, you know, I, I can say, I was very happy that when I briefed uh, my triage system um, at a TECC meeting um, I've had, I think currently there's, there's 20 agencies that are using it or using a version of it. Some of which uh, two or three of which happen to be in Canada Um because they're like, yeah, this is something that we can teach our law enforcement officers. That's it's easy to teach, and and they can do it in that way. You know, in in addition, what when the scene is not safe enough for medical personnel to enter, casualty treatment and casualty triage can still be ongoing. Because you know, this is we've pushed this down to the lowest level, and I emphasize all the time that that's and uh, there's a lot of SWAT docs and a lot of SWAT medics hate me for it because I say, you know, it's it, to me it's more important. Uh, I had an appointment today. My, my, my SWAT team had a barricade situation. I could not go to that barricade situation. Cause I was, I was gone. I was an hour away when it, when it went down. Uh, I'm fine because I know exactly what all my operators are carrying. I know what exactly what all my operators are trained to do. They know how to use their tourniquets. They know how to use their IFACs. So I'm comfortable with that. Whereas a lot of SWAT medics and a lot of SWAT docs kind of want the opposite. They want to be indispensable because they want to be there. They want to play, right? I hate to use that word, but, um, so I get some heat from people, you know, when I say the, your number one priority is not how cool your kid is and making sure that you're there making sure you go to all these cool schools. That's secondary. Your number one priority is outfitting your operators and training your operators and knowing that on a night that you're not with them, things are 98% chance. Things are still going to be absolutely fine because the 98% solution is uh, that somebody within three feet of somebody else can treat them and and throw on a tourniquet and throw on a chest seal and then 
uh, and then get them in an ambulance and get them to bright lights and cold steel. That's 98% survivability is there. 98 survivability is not in, uh, well, I've got a cool multicam uh, Mojo aid bag with TXA and, and a blood starter kit uh, and all this other stuff, you know, that's, and, and I got cool patches on my body armor that say doc, uh, you know, that that's, that's cool, but th that's not the 98% solution. Yeah. We had this discussion last time about, um, you know, having a, when you have an incident you have to triage, just understanding that unless there's some type of mass hemorrhage happening, mm -hmm. you have time. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I think we had this conversation where it's like, uh, you know, um, if you're if there's a still an active shooter, there's still rounds coming at you or, you know, rounds needing to go down range that has to be taken care of. And then you have to make sure that if there's a mass hemorrhage that gets taken care of. But outside of that, get them back to a secondary care point. Mm -hmm. And then and the beautiful and we also had this discussion was there's a huge difference between being in an operational environment, um, you know, overseas than there mm -hmm. is in being in a major metropolitan area in North America. Mm -hmm. um, access to medical care is much more readily available. And I mean, obviously, I'm using a generalization. I understand that there's very rural areas in, in both the US and Canada. But for the most part, access to that medical care, especially if there's some type of incident, you have fire coming, EMS is coming, pretty much everybody and their dogs showing up. There's mm -hmm. going to be somebody there that's more qualified to take care of the individual, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that's an interesting conversation because I think you're right. I think a lot of people get stuck on where it's like, I want to be indispensable to my team, which derives, flies directly in the face of good leadership principles, right? Mm -hmm. And I know that's something else that you talk about a lot is, is leadership. And, you know, being a good leader, you know, and you know this from, from your time on, you know, in, in tier one units, the, the best leader isn't the one that's kicking in the doors and doing all the stuff. They're the ones that are allowing their team to be the best at what they're good at. Um, and I think that's a, that's an interesting conversation to have around this discussion. No, that that's absolutely true. And that's, uh, you know, again, it's, there gets to be a little bit of a, uh, you know, part of it's a little bit of an ego hangup, but I, I had a team sergeant who told me once, he said, you know, if you, if you ever find yourself in a position that you have somebody on your team who's completely indispensable, you need to fire that person because that means that, uh, that other people are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, that you, you become completely dependent on one individual. So then if something happens and that person is not, that person can't come to work that day, then everything's going to stop. And that's not, you know, the whole idea of the way a, a team works and the way an organization works is completely contrary to that, that everybody should be pulling their weight. Everybody, sh everybody should be able to flex over and cover down on somebody else's issue. And that's, you know, the, the operator should be able to flex over and cover down and provide basic medical care. Just, uh, you know, as I, I'm, I'm fully an advocate that I think, uh, all tactical, uh, medical providers should be armed. I don't think, uh, I think the warm zone is a myth. I've, I've gone on record as saying this multiple times. It's, it's, it's a complete myth. And that nobody should be going forward without a gun in their hand, because the as you mentioned, the number one life-saving piece of of equipment is slinging lead. That's you know, it's if if somebody next to me gets shot, the very first thing I better be doing is shooting the son of a bitch that shot them, not worrying about you know reaching for a tourniquet. Is we you know we need to neutralize that threat first, mm -hmm. and uh, everybody is a shooter. 
until somebody gets injured and it's like, okay, now I'm not a shooter anymore. The gunfight is over or the gunfight, there's a lull in the gunfighting to the point that, okay, now I'm a medic or I'm a physician. But 10 seconds ago, I was a shooter just like everybody else here. So uh, that's the mentality you have to, you have to wrap yourself around. Does that also, that's also part of that conversation where like what happened in Florida, um, I can't remember the school that it happened in. Um, and this was maybe a couple of years ago where the officer basically just kind of refused to go in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, but that that's kind of part of that. It's part of that same discussion, right? Where it's, are the people that we're putting out there, are they um, not, are they just capable, but are they willing Mm-hmm. to put themselves in that in that position if if that time arises right and that's that's a whole nother concept i mean obviously it's it's different because all the guys that you used to work with that that was why they signed up right that yeah. was their bread and butter but you do have and and i had this discussion the other day on retention and recruitment for law enforcement mm-hmm. um but we have to be careful when we're, we're recruiting law enforcement as to understanding the the psychological uh, components behind who that officer is going to be um, mm-hmm. and what we're going to be asking them to do. Because I know officers personally um, that if they're like, if I didn't have to carry a gun, I wouldn't carry a gun. And you're like, hmm. well, that's interesting. Um, I mean, they're Canadian officers, but mm-hmm. at the same time, but they're like, I'm a, I do X, Y, or Z job. I don't work the street anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm purely in an investigative role. Um, and we have this discussion where maybe for those specific people, because there are people that are excellent investigators that maybe will never see the street again, maybe transitioning them into a civilian type role or a different role where they're not an armed, uh, police officer or whatever that happens to be. And that's a discussion that we're having is when do we start, um, hyper-focusing roles for law enforcement officers and saying, Hey, listen, if you're going to be working the street, this is a requirement. You do need to be able to do this. And if you can't, not a problem, right? Because we have to be, you know, PC about things, mm-hmm. but we're going to put you in a role then that doesn't require this. Um, but it may mean X, Y, or Z consequences to, to moving you there. So um, that's a, what do you think about that? Like, do you think that we have an issue with officers that potentially won't put themselves in the middle of that gunfight um, when the time comes. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it is an, it is an issue. I think, you know, for it, anybody who won't go through a closed door, not knowing what's on the other side, but knowing that there's a great, a 50% chance or greater that there's somebody on the other side of that door who is not only willing to kill you, but they're, they're written in a ready posture to do so. If you're not willing to breach that door and go through it, um, then you need to find another line of work. And I say that as somebody who's never worn the badge of a law enforcement officer, but um, you know, I do feel that I've worked close enough with them that I can make that statement. Um, it, it's something you have to be willing to do. Now, you know, if if you want to do something else, if you want, you know, in the it's <laughs> I think about the. Uh, whatever Guy Ritchie that movie is, you know, is uh, in in the UK they have what they call traffic wardens, right? And a, a traffic warden 
they they only deal with you know parking citations and things of that nature you know they're not out there if so if a purse gets natched they're not running after it right they're not going to be running towards the sound of gunfire that's not their job you know we have here in the u.s we have in some of the larger cities we have what we call meter maids right that you know would, would drive around and write parking tickets so if we're talking about dividing up enforcement into multiple cells um then i you know i think that's appropriate and i we, you know, we recently had the, the defund the police movement and people talked about, you know, oh, you know, social workers and people laughed at that. And I didn't laugh at that because I, I, I don't think that that statement is without merit. You know, the idea of having 24 hour on call social workers that be, because if you look at a lot of the calls that police are getting in the middle of the night, they're not, they're not necessarily law enforcement calls, you know, you know, things like things like basic welfare checks um, and things of that nature, you know, there are things that you, you don't necessarily need to pull a police officer with a gun, you know, off of the street to go and do this, you know, when, when somebody else could go do it, we see the same thing in emergency medicine, right? So probably about uh, in, in the U S officially, if you crunch the numbers, it's about 20, it's between 25 and 30%. Um, it's, it's flexed, uh, pre COVID it flexed a little bit higher than that of the people coming into an emergency room don't have emergencies. Um, in the, in military emergency rooms, it's higher in Canada and the UK it's higher because, you know, of course you have, you have socialized medicine. So, and when it's, when it's free, people are more likely to show up to the emergency room for these. It's, uh, it's, it may be urgent, but not emergent type things. Mm-hmm. And our, our answer to that in emergency medicine is to co-locate with emergency rooms, what they call, some places call it a fast track. Some places call it an urgent care or a green zone where when people sign in and they say, you know, okay, what's wrong with you? Well, my shoulder has been hurting me for six months. Okay. Well, that's clearly not a life-threatening emergency. So you're going to go to this other area. You know, instead of going through that door, you're going to go through that door. Um, and that's been helpful because people can still, it's still a place that's open 24 seven. Uh, they can still get seen because uh, Americans are terrible about wanting to wait and make an appointment. Um, so we, we need some type of, that's, that's why like the if, if I waved a magic wand and we had the Canadian medical system in the U S tomorrow in six months, the wheels would fall off completely. And it's because of the American mentality because they want, 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 you know, I'm, I'm slamming my countrymen here that it, it would turn into this disastrous. Everybody would go to the ER for everything. Because, you know, it's, we're at a point now where somebody will choose a meal based on drive-through line length, right? Impatience is paramount. Nobody has patience anymore. You know, what, what do you mean I got to wait next week for the next episode of Yellowstone? Why can't I binge watch it all at once? What are you, waiting 30 minutes for a pizza? That's barbaric. You know, you know, waiting two days to see my physician for a problem I've had for a year and a half, that's completely ridiculous. I want resolution now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what Americans want, right? Um, so that's why we've kind of had to make some adjustments in, in, in how we run emergency rooms. And I think there's room in law enforcement for that as well. I think, you know, you know, it, on local levels, on municipal levels, they need to take a close look at what are the calls that we're getting? And could some of them be handled by people who aren't carrying a gun, right? Um, you know, can we put, can we have a traffic division that only does traffic, you know, and guess what? 
if if somebody if all they're doing is is driving a four wheeler around and writing parking tickets, I don't care how morbidly obese they are. I don't care what they look like. Right. In fact, let's let let's let's recruit disabled people to do that for God's sakes. Could you could a disabled person do that? Could somebody do that from a wheelchair? Yeah. Why don't we have people in wheelchairs doing it? Right. And then we raise the standards for the people that are carrying a gun, raise the standards for the people that might have to react to that active shooter. Um, because we take that and and most cops are going to be ecstatic about that. Cause you think, you know, is your average police officer thrilled that they get to be in a parking lot somewhere with a radar gun, giving out speeding tickets? No, that's not what they signed up for. They're, you know, where's the protect and serve in that, you know, whereas you could have a two person team, um, you know, literally somebody running a radar gun who has the use of one eye and one arm, right? That's all, that's all it would require. And then another person with them to flag them, flag the person down or pull them down and, or pull them over and write the ticket. Um, and that would leave law enforcement officers free to do law enforcement shit. So I don't, I don't have a problem with, I don't, I don't think any police department should be defunded, but if we're going to start reallocating into areas that, Hey, guess what? If you're wearing, if you, if you have a gun and a taser and body armor, you're not writing tickets anymore. You know, we, we might now when, you know, when it comes to things like high risk stops, obviously that's, that's a little bit different animal, but you know, simple shit, you know, let, let it just be simple, you know? And uh, again, this is something, I don't have all the answers to this and I'm, I'm aware that I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying, but I think it's something that could be looked at, you know, by a lot of municipalities and they might be able to, to come up with a way to skin that cat that's beneficial for everybody. Yeah, I the the vehicle interdiction and ticketing thing isn't always an interesting conversation, right? Because obviously we know and we've seen all of the you know incidents that have happened where an officer's pulled somebody over um for just a minor traffic violation and then that guy steps out with an assault rifle. Mm-hmm. Um and so I that's a that's a super tricky one. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of components to law enforcement that can be you know, we could bifurcate that and you have, here are the, the, uh, designated safer taskings. And mm-hmm. then here are the ones where it's, you go to work, you don't know what you're getting into kind of thing. And to be in that group, you have to have that next level standard, right? You don't mm-hmm. get the basic PT test anymore, mm-hmm. right? You get your, you're tested and you're trained all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I mean, it's, it's similar to what we do in the military though. Right. I mean, I think, yeah. I think that's probably why you, we, we gravitate to that because it's like, we understand there are, there are different types of human beings. Mm-hmm. There's a certain type of people that are really, really good at, at certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the military for the most part is good at figuring that out. Yeah. You know, um, and that, that's, that's why in this, you know, in the soft community, uh, you know, all the soft units going back as far as the eighties that I'm aware of, we're coming up with their own PT tests, right? You had the regular army PT test, right? But, but even in the eighties in, in Ranger regiment, you had a different standard. The standards were higher because, you know, we do harder shit and you also had, you know, pull-ups on there and you also had a swim test that you had to do. So you added on to the test in the tier one units, you know, they had different things, everything from the upper body round Robin to other tests that they came up with. Um, and now the army has formalized that in the form of the army combat fitness test, right? So if you're, if you're a clerk, if you're a clerk typist, 
you have one standard. If you're an operator, you have a completely different standard. And uh, I think there's no reason that we can't be doing that. And, and the upside, there's a lot of upsides to this. I mean, it would, it would give a lot of other people a chance to serve their community who maybe wouldn't have gotten a chance before. And there'd be a lot more job satisfaction because people would be doing the job they signed up for as opposed to the job they didn't sign up for. Cause I can, I can tell you if, if I went into the, you know, if into the military and they said, you know, okay, once, I mean, we already had to deal with operation clean sweep and, you know, we're going to have, you're going to have to mow the lawn and, and do all this other crap, which, you know, it's like, I'm a special forces operator. Why am I mowing? Why am I raking leaves? Like that's not what it's not part of my job description, but, but we did end up having to do stuff like that. Now, if on top of that, I would, have, it's like, all right, where well, you're going to, you're going to spend one day, you're going to spend one day out of every week, um, typing up awards. And then you're going to spend another day out of every week, um, changing the oil and all the vehicles in the motor pool. It's like, no, no, no. People have MOSs for that. You know, that's, that's their job. You know, why aren't we doing that on the community level? You know, that's, you know, these people write tickets, these people respond to welfare checks, these people investigate crimes, uh, you know, and we, and we subdivide it from there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting conversation and I don't think there's going to be an easy solution. And, you know, we could probably talk, we'll probably be talking about this for the next 20 years and it still won't be figured out. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but it's, it is what it is, but here's the thing. And, and, you know, the whole purpose behind what we're doing with ILET is that training standard. It's, um, and I, and this is what I wanted to bring this back to, um, was, was training and how I think normally what, and anybody who listens to me or anything we've put out over the last two years, I'll say, I am not a fan of one size fits all training. Um, especially for law enforcement. I think that's a horrible, horrible idea because what training an officer needs in rural Texas is a lot different than what an officer needs in LA. So that you can't just blanket like everybody needs the same type of training. Now, right. that being said, I think one of the caveats to that, maybe one of the only caveats is something like a TCCC or some type of baseline TAC med training for police or critical incident responses where if you have multi-jurisdictional response to an incident mm-hmm. that that structure is somewhat formalized under a basic standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that may be one of those only exceptions, but I think that's a, I, I think you're right. I think there has to be something where I'm surprised that TCCC isn't a, isn't a standard for just law enforcement in general or TCC mm-hmm. or whatever, but I know you'll go in there and they're like, well, here's your, you know, standard first aid course. Um, and you're like, okay, so I've done my, my two days of first aid training. Now I'm good to go. And it's like, well, come on, man. <laughs> at least like, like do like an emergency first responder program or Mm -hmm. something. Um, Where do you think is that bottom level, like at a minimum, every single person who is in a public safety role, what do you think that minimum is that they should hit? Yeah. I think everyone who's in a public safety role, I I think uh, uh, the minimum that you need is, is 16 hours of training. Uh, and I'm using that cause that's what the TCCC model is, but, um, is, does TCCC directly translate for civilians? No. So we've seen more and more evidence to say, no, that it doesn't, the wounding patterns are somewhat different. The response times are different, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, treating somebody shot at a mall or shot in a domestic dispute is not the same as, as treating somebody, 
in a mud hut in the Hindu Kush uh, mountain range, right? It's different. So, but, but I think 16 hours is a good starting point. And then, uh, you know, basic, basic life saving, you know, basic March algorithm stuff, but with all of that has to be couched as to what your injury patterns are going to be. So when I teach, uh, you know, when I get, when I go up to Fort hood, um, once a year to teach, uh, there's a, a program up there that, that I started in the infancy, which was a tactical emergency medicine program that, uh, a fellow by the name of Ben Donham, who's way smarter than me and also a more likable person than me re- really took the ball and ran with it and turned it into an amazing program, uh, better than I even ever dreamed of. Um, uh, I'm, I get invited once a year to go up there and teach that program to, to EM residents. And what I emphasize with them as far as, as tourniquets and what their, uh, their injury patterns are going to be is totally different than what, uh, what I emphasize when I'm teaching law enforcement officers, when I'm teaching the guys on my team and I'm, uh, next month I'm teaching an actual tactical officers, uh, association, uh, Thames course, what I emphasize to them will be totally different again, because the wounding patterns are different because there is no medevac ring when we're talking about flying for 45 minutes for most of them, right? If they're operating in a rural area, there could be, but for the most part, we're talking about a 15 minute drive to at least a level two trauma center. So the, the approach is going to be different. I mean, the skills are the same. You know, we, I think it's important to have skill standards, like every, to, to say something as simple as everybody in public safety should be able to apply a tourniquet to themselves or to somebody else uh, in 30 seconds or less. That's a skill standard. I think that's something we can all agree on. Now, uh, as far as policy saying, you know, like I don't expect my guys, on uh, my operators, uh, our standard is you carry your tourniquet in, in, in close proximity to your pistol holster. Um, and in such a way that, that it's uh, accessible with the offhand as well. But if, if I run up to you, I know to look in the proximity of your holster for your tourniquet to treat you. And you know that, you know, just like the, 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 the pattern recognition that you established and reaching for that sidearm, that, uh, that that's approximately where your tourniquet is as well. Do we need to establish every, everybody in, uh, in public safety in the, in the entire country, uh, in the, in the U S or in Canada, all carry their tourniquets in the same place? No, we don't have to do that. Do we need to set a standard that they all carry the same tourniquet? Like we're, we're all only going to carry tourniquet X. No, we don't need to do that. You know, we, we establish parameters of what establishes a good tourniquet from a bad tourniquet. We establish standards as to, um, why shouldn't you carry your tourniquet in between your shoulder blades? Why is that a bad idea? Um, you know, it's, can you show me that it's accessible with both hands in virtually any position you might find yourself, um, and that you can get it out one handed and apply it in 30 seconds. That's the standard. So we establish skill standards and then basic guidelines when it comes to policy. I think, I think that's the key, but again, it's, we're talking about multi-agencies and everybody is, everybody either is an expert or they know an expert. So you get tons of arguments, you know, any, the seemingly most simple policy in the world that I can come up with, uh, I can get, you know, I, I post things on Instagram all the time that I think are just an, a complete open and shut case. And I'll get people, well, you know, you know, pontificating on some weird niche 
0.0000001% thing that they're convinced because of that makes makes their way the right way. So you're always going to have disagreement. Yeah. What if a purple unicorn jumps yes. in out yeah. of a C-130 and lands within 10 feet of your paws? Yeah. Well, then shit. <laughs> well, that's, you know, I, I was in, in 2011, I was briefing, uh, I was briefing the medevac plan, um, to an admiral and, uh, he asked me during the briefing, I said, so, you know, our plan, if we get this type of injury is going here, this type of injury is going here. This is something that I'll, you know, treat on, on the aircraft and go here. And he said, okay, so here's my question. What are you going to do? It's, it's, it's just you and a couple of medics on that aircraft. What are you going to get do if you get, um, two patients and they're, I, I, I don't remember if he said identical injuries or they're, uh, they're equally emergent, like exactly the same. What, what are you going to do? And I said, well, sir, then I'm going to, I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to figure out which one of the saw movies that I'm in, because that literally only happens in movies. Like there, if I, if I injure, if I set off an explosion in a room or I randomly shoot into a crowd of a hundred people, no two people are going to be identically critical. That's right. just, it's just, it's not the, the laws of probability make it completely impossible. The only way that that happens, like I would have to line up two identical twins with identical physiology, whose last meal was both had their last meal was exactly, exactly 67 minutes ago. And they had the same thing. Their hydration status is equal. And then I would have to not only injure them in the exact same point, I couldn't even shoot them in the exact same point. I would have to open them up and dissect them down to, you know, I'm going to shoot, I'm going to sever the splenic artery in both of them. And then, Hey, guess what? Inside of five minutes, one of them would be more critical than the other. Cause that's just the way physiology works. That's the way that the random chance works when it comes to injuries. So, but we're always looking for that crazy. What if, and you wait, what ends up happening is we end up what ifing ourselves into these overly complex plans and we what if ourselves into carrying way too much bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. I'll give you a great, great example uh, on, on a level that almost everybody listening can relate to. We, so many places require that you have uh, it, it, pretty much everywhere. You have a minimum of two non-lethal on your belt at all times, right? So that's a, a baton uh, and a taser. A lot of places, it's a minimum of three. So now we're talking baton, taser, pepper spray, right? So basically I've, what, and it, it, it's, is there any rhyme or reason to the order in which I'm going to use those? No, not really. You know, most people would agree that taser ends up being last, but that's not always the case. Sometimes taser ends up being first. So, and then you talk to these officers and you ask them, okay, in all of your years, oh, I've deployed my taser three times. I've never drawn my pepper spray. I've never, I, I pulled out my baton only to break a window with a kid in the back seat on a hot day. And it's like, well, why are you even carrying pepper spray? Because I'm required to, right? It's one of those instances where somebody in a room who's been off the road for 10 years came up with a policy and it was all based on these what if scenarios. 
Um, and, and in the end, it just, it overloads you. It gives you more to think about. So, you know, one could make the argument that, uh, that this could have been a contributor in this recent, what was it? Uh, Kim Potter, I think was her name, mm-hmm. the officer that drew her sidearm as opposed to drawing her, her taser, right. Is when you, when you overcomplicate that belt and, and, uh, and you overcomplicate the number of things that you're carrying on it. Um, it starts to become, you reach a point of diminishing returns and it starts to become a recipe for disaster at some point. Now there were other factors involved there, right? She, you know, when a, one should have been dominant hand, one should have been offhand. There, there should have been a clearer demarcation as far as that. And I think, I think everybody would agree on that, you know, get, getting into the weeds and, and, and arguing what her ultimate culpability was is, you know, the jury's decided on that and I'm not going to, I'm not a legal expert, so I'm not going to try to argue it, but, um, it's uh, we're hampered by that, and we're we're hampered by that in the military. You know, I've seen medics carrying way too much shit overseas. I've seen medics carrying way too much shit here stateside. I see police officers that are, are required to carry you know way too many sets of handcuffs and way too many forms of non-lethal, um, you know, and they just end up completely overloaded, and then they have all the health problems secondary to that thirty-five pound duty belt. You know, that's the, the Batman utility belt, right? That's the, yeah. um, you know, you, you bring up the point, you know, uh, of the standardization, obviously in the military, that's what, you know, you see that it's every, you know, it happens in basic training, right? Everybody, you will have every piece and it's told you, it, they tell you exactly where to put it and how to put it. And that's done for a reason. But mm-hmm. when you get to the operational level, it's kind of, you have to, you have to rejig things to that work best for you. Mm-hmm. under that umbrella um law enforcement is interesting like you said that with the the less lethal options i've been saying this for a long time um for myself for example i have trained filipino martial arts for over 10 close to 15 years now i am so comfortable with the baton it's not even oh, i'm sure you are yeah and so i if i was like you could literally give me a sidearm and a baton and leave me be I, because I'm going to, some guy comes at me with a knife. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to pull a baton. They have a, mm-hmm. they have a stick. I'm going to pull a baton. They have anything. I'm going to pull a baton just because I can do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and, and it gives me an extra 16 to 18 inches, depending on which one I'm carrying that there's no way that they're going to touch me. And mm-hmm. if they do, that's on me. Like that's my pad. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting point because you talk about carrying all this extra stuff, not just weight. But the amount of space that you have on a belt is limited, especially when you have, um, you know, I have friends that are 120 pound female officers. Mm -hmm. Um, It's different for a guy like me. I have like a 38 inch waist. I can pack a lot of stuff on a belt because I got a lot of extra room. If you're a 120 pound female, shit gets so jam packed on their belts. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. And, And you're sitting there and you're like, well, if I can get rid of a few of these things and maybe here's a great option. What if we replaced every OC spray with a, with a um, tourniquet on mm-hmm. every single officer's belt? Yeah. Like that's an, that, that's a crazy conversation, yeah. right? Like I understand if you're a, a park ranger and you deal a lot with wildlife and you need to carry something like an OC spray for animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. But you're right. Like you're an officer that works in a school or you work in healthcare. Maybe you're an officer that's, you know, in hospitals. Um, when I used to do security and, and train security 
in the hospitals up here in Canada, um, you know, I had to literally stop an officer from spraying somebody because they <laughs> literally pulled out their OC spray and they were going to spray them right in the middle of the emergency room. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. Ah, time out. Like you'll literally shut this entire hospital down. What yeah. are you doing? Yeah. Oh, well. It's if uh, if it were up to me, I, I I agree. I think the only the only practical application, and and somebody can argue this with me, that I see for OC spray is animals. Yeah. I don't because here's the problem with using it on people. Uh, first and foremost, it's exceedingly unreliable. All right. I I've seen people that can walk uh, through it like can walk like through it, going you know they'll they'll hold out their taco to get some on it. Uh, because it's just delicious to them, right? So it's exceedingly unreliable. That's one problem. It contaminates the entire area, right? So, you know, potentially if they're holding on to somebody or they're in a group or in a crowd, you're going to hit other people, right? So there's going to be collateral damage. Then the third thing is if, if this person warranted getting OC sprayed, they're going to jail, right? Which means you're going to have to put hands on them and they're going to go in your car. So guess what you and your car are now going to be covered in OC spray, right? So if I had to wave a magic wand and say there was one thing I was going to do or not do with law enforcement around, around the country, it would be let's do away with OC spray completely. Keep the big fire extinguisher sized one in your vehicle. So you get a call that there's, you know, a, a dog terrorizing somebody or something like that. You reach for that. But as far as carrying it on your belt, no, like you say, let's let's make room for a tourniquet or make room for another magazine, a nine millimeter, something that you can actually get some use out of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's always been that one where I'm just like, I, I don't understand why they don't. Um, and this goes back to the the let's go back to the decompression needle because we're just going to keep bringing this back up. <laughs> um, if you show if an officer shows competency and a certain skill level at using either a certain instrument or tool mm -hmm. or something, it should be their option whether or not they carry that or not. Yeah, I think so. If I can demonstrate, like for example, imagine Mike gets a job as an auxiliary constable or something. Um, mm -hmm. and you go out there and they go, our policy is that you do not carry a, uh, a decompression needle, but you're like, uh, real quick. Um, I'm actually like a, a board licensed physician is, right. is emergency physician. Nope. Doesn't matter. Right. Cause that shit actually happens to people. Yeah. It's against policy. You can't mm -hmm. do it. And it's, it's more of that. We should, where's that conversation start where you say, Hey, listen, I understand that policies need to exist. Well, I get that. But mm -hmm. we cannot, and this goes back to what I said earlier, you can't go so far as to say it must be A, B, or C, or this brand or that brand. It's more of a, a generalized idea where it's, if you are to carry whatever, you must meet X standard. You, have mm -hmm. to, you meet a certain skill set or whatever it is. Or maybe you say, hey, listen, you have to carry a minimum of one less lethal option on your person. Mm -hmm. And now... Because because what will happen is, again, think about from the training perspective, you have to go and you have to requalify taser, right? Mm -hmm. You have to requalify your DT. Mm -hmm. um, nobody ever read that you you get sprayed once in Academy and you never touch your OC again. So, again, fuck off the OC spray. Um, but say say now you're between taser and a baton and you say, hey, listen, you can carry both, but you have to requalify in both. Or which one are you most proficient and most comfortable with? And then mm -hmm. allow them that option. Um, I think having those discussions and it's a very, it's a pretentious discussion for people because they're very 
like, why would you take tools away from people? And mm-hmm. it's like, well, because they don't use them and they're never mm-hmm. going to use them. And if they do use them, they're probably going to use it wrong. Right. So where's that liability component come in? And now you see these officers that have this um, where they're having this liability put back onto their person and saying, hey, if you fuck up, we're not covering you anymore. You can they can sue you to kingdom come and charge you criminally with everything. Yeah. What officer is going to want to do that? Yeah. No, they're they're not. And they and and you. You hit the nail on the head because when we're talking about the baton, the OC spray and the taser, we're talking about three things that are on the same level on the continuum of force. Typically they're viewed as being in the same level of the continuum of force. So why do I have three things that are on the same level? Right. I went from, I went from verbal slash hands to one of those three things. Right. And if the argument is, well, you know, what if, that what if they can only get to one of them? Okay, then I don't know. Carry two batons, then you know why? You know it's you know. It, then are you dictating? You know, how many of your officers are carrying their taser, OC spray, and baton all in close proximity to one another? To where if they got knocked on their left side and they're laying on their left side, they can't access any of those things. Uh, you know, certainly some are in that situation. So why are you? Why are you saying here? carry three things that are on the same level and continuum of force. And we're not going to dictate that you're going to go, okay, OC baton taser in that order. Um, you know, it's, you're saying you're giving them options, but you're really not because they're, again, they're going to choose what they feel comfortable with, or they're going to make a snap judgment. You know, it's, it's other than the animal with the OC spray. I don't, I don't see a whole lot of application for it. Again, you're somebody who's comfortable with a baton, obviously, because you've been stick fighting for years. Uh, and some people are in that position, but not everybody's in that position. You know, some people are they want they want that they want the ranged attacks. So, you know, they're going to they're going to want the taser. And then if it's close in, you know, they can still what do you call it? Bumping them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's tricky. And it's it's the more shit you have, the more regulations go along with it, the more things you have to be proficient in. We're already requiring police officers to be so proficient in so many things that it's there just aren't there's not enough training hours in a year to be proficient on all these things. You know, it's ideally they should be doing that 16 hour stop the bleed training every other year. And they already don't have time to do that. Now, on top of that, you have online modules that they have to do on, you know, how to recognize a psychotic break and how to deal with that and and all these other things, you know, all these, you know, these de-escalation techniques that they have to do. And the the problem with de-escalation techniques, as I'm sure you will agree with me on this, is de-escalation is a two-way street. If I walk up and knock on your door and I want to de-escalate, but you don't want to de-escalate, then shit ain't de-escalating. You know, it's, there has to be the unspoken agreement that you're willing to de-escalate. Um, you know, I can't magically de-escalate somebody, you know, the, this isn't Dungeons and Dragons. I can't roll a 20 sided die and I hit a 19. So I get to de-escalate, you know, because, you know, because your counter roll was lower than that. Maybe I'm misquoting, misquoting Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know, <laughs> but you know, it, it's, <laughs> that, was a, that was a massive geek check. I just gave myself, that was away. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> You know, but that that's not the way this works. You know, it's like, oh, I go in and I've got a I've got a good smile and I'm charismatic, so I can just de-escalate anything. I'm the I'm the you know, I'm the county's de-escalation champion. 
You know, some people have such a bug in their bonnet that they're just not going to fucking be de-escalated. They want to fight. So, well, there's, um, you know, the de-escalation topic, there's certain buzzwords that have flowed around the industry every, every year or so. And, and that's this year, the last two years, right. Um, ever since George Floyd kind of that it's that buzzword, mm-hmm. um, some of our friends and, and partners here with Islet, uh, Dave Young and Gary Klugwitz with Vistalar, um, have, uh, and they brought this to my attention because they've been teaching this for a long time now, but they don't even they do training, but they don't call it uh, de-escalation. They call it non-escalation training, hmm. um, which I thought was an interesting reframe on that entire idea, which is why do I have to de-escalate them? Mm-hmm. Like, why is that? Why are we going into it assuming that that's what we need to do mm-hmm. um, instead of just going in and, and not escalating the situation? And that starts with, like you had just said, that starts with the officer. Mm-hmm. That doesn't start with it because the only person that I can control in this entire scenario is myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's lost a lot, especially when we do this type of training It's well, here's how to identify if they're in crisis or if they have a mental health issue or if they're schizophrenic or bipolar or, or whatever, or if it's drug induced or here's all the little things. And here's your wallet card that with your checklist, how about this? How about who gives a shit what their situation is? How about you just take control yourself first? And then you just deal with things as they come up. Yeah. Right. Like, how, how that's a it's it's seems like a crazy conversation but at the same time it seems almost very commonsensical which is just if you control yourself going into the situation and you have the tools and skills and abilities and you have that confidence in your ability you just go in there and you deal with what happens mm-hmm. right um that's an interesting conversation to have i don't know that's a that's a rabbit hole yeah it's it's, it's challenging. I mean, it's, it's really challenging for law enforcement because you get in these situations and you're, uh, you know, you're, you're burning time too. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's the time factor involved that, you know, how long we've all had to argue with a drunk, you know, how, it's, it, it, it doesn't take long before you start to realize the complete futility involved. Uh, you're tired of it. You just want it to end. You know, you know, there's nothing, everything I say, they're going to have a counter to. Right. Cause it's not, it's not really, it's, it's never about what we're actually arguing with. It's that they just want to argue. Um, and it's, it's a colossal pain in the ass. I've had, and I've had to deal with it in the emergency room, you know, trying, you know, and, and I've had to tell patients, look, I don't, I frankly do not have time to negotiate with you on this. You know, it's, it is what it is. I've, I've offered you this procedure or I've offered you this treatment. I have explained it in the best way possible for me. You know, I, I have, a whole department full of patients, you know, and it's, you know, I think about that officer who's in a living room, you know, non-escalating or de-escalating or whatever. And there's 30 calls waiting and he's dealing with some asshole who just thinks they're the only asshole on the face of the earth and wants to be the center of the universe and wants to argue. And you're dealing with that shit. And, you know, and then we wonder, well, why, you know, why, why is there burnout in law enforcement? It's, you know, because of shit like that. And it's all the constraint. Like you say, you can only control yourself, but we put all the constraint on the officers, all the second guessing goes on the officers. So the, uh, uh, what was the case last year with the officer that pulled up and the, the girl had, uh, was trying to, to stab the other girl. Oh, um, the, uh, the guy who was like a reserve air force guy that that one shot the two teenage girls yeah two teenage girls and she obviously she had a knife remember uh um uh no uh um, yeah I, I did an instagram post on it that i got a lot of a lot of heat for but my my whole take on that was 
why are we judging him for a seven-second decision in which he was called about somebody with a knife, showed up, saw they had a knife. She actually, her actually, her pace of attack increased on seeing him, right? Because it was now, now the, oh, either I've got an audience or I've got safety, right? So the, the, the hold me back type thing, right? So her, her pace of attack increased. He had, a, he made a seven second snap decision and made the right decision. We're giving him all kinds of grief. Why aren't we giving her, you know, her absentee parents made 16 years worth of bad fucking decisions and we're not giving them any grief. Why is that? <laughs> you know, and um, it, it's, it's the same in a lot of these situations. We give the, we put the whole onus on the officer, uh, who showed up. He only knew what he saw when he got there. Um, you know, he, it's, we put all, all of the blame goes on the officer. None of the, the blame goes on the person who's driving the train, uh, which is the person who refused to deescalate. Uh, Micaiah Bryant. Yeah, that was it. That was, was the, it. Uh, was the one there. Thank you, Google. Yeah. And a, you know, a lot of celebrities clung on to that. It's funny because they all in the, as the initial reports were coming out, they were all quick to condemn. I didn't see a one of them come back later and go, Hey, you know what? Now that I know a little bit more about this situation, I was wrong. You know, uh, I, there's, you know, that's an, that's a very interesting thing. Um, is the current state of culture right now, the media and celebrities, um, you know, I know it happened and I know you've done some stuff. I know on your podcast, you talked about like Rittenhouse and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I found it very interesting during the whole Rittenhouse case, um, how just the amount of misinformation that was being put out at, mm-hmm. like they're, they're literally in the middle of trial. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of our, um, one of our board members was, uh, actually testified as a, as a witness for the defense, um, for, for that case. Um, thankfully. And it was interesting because we're, I'm sitting there, I'm watching this trial unfold and I'm watching the news feeds come out and I can't remember if it was MSNBC or, or one of, it was a massive national news syndication and it comes out and it, and it was something about how, um, this you know he shot three unarmed black kids or whatever and mm-hmm. i'm sitting in there and i'm like well that was yeah that was in uh the guardian the uk like, guardian I think. what yeah. what the like dude like, like literally didn't even open like didn't even look at it right yeah. like um as a complete side note that kid is gonna never have to work again on a day in his life but no the, yeah that's when all of the lawsuits are said and done he's gonna be pretty rich but but that was that was something. But in that case, to to counter my own point, that was one where I would watch and you would actually see people that were predominantly a, like um, very um, pro conviction after that trial went through, came back and said, listen, I actually sat through the trial and I was wrong. Like the, it was obviously self-defense. Yeah. Um, and so there were a handful of people that actually came back and. Yeah. And, and I, and, and I, and I applaud that. those people, you know, yeah. even, even the, the, the girl from the young Turks, I guess, you know, she made a statement that, mm, wow, yeah. this was not at all what I was led to believe early on. Um, you know, I, I was shocked that people still, so there's still to this day, people that believe Jesse uh, Smollett. Oh yeah. Completely shocked too. You know, that, that's a, that is a story that I, I knew was bullshit in the first 10 minutes I heard it. 
Didn't weigh in on it though. Cause I'm like, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm 99% sure this is bullshit, but I need the other 1%. And in very short order, I had the other 1%. But the fact that people are still in denial about that and, you know, still in denial about all the, these other Rittenhouse and these other cases, it just shocks me. It shows that, you know, people don't want to give up their narrative. And the problem with all of these is pretty much every story gets reported wrong in the first 48 to 72 hours. So, you know, hands up to shoot was a complete myth. So the, uh, what, what was the guy's name? Um, the guy that was Michael Brown's, uh, partner in crime, that guy should be sued for millions of dollars and should be in jail for the rest mm. of his life because basically he caused all those riots. And the reason was, is when he got questioned, he didn't want to say, all right, we robbed a convenience store. We were, we were feeling pretty full of ourselves. So then when the cop came up, we told him to fuck off and Mike, Mike reached in and tried to grab his gun. Uh, and then things went bad, right? Cause that was the truth. Right. But, but he didn't want to portray it that way. So he lied, he lied to the media. Um, you know, then he lied on the stand and got called out and people don't forget this, that he completely recanted his testimony on the stand and then trembling on the witness stand asked if he could be excused and was told, no, you're going to stay here and answer all of our questions and can, and continued to get shredded on the witness stand. And basically he gave that DA all the uh, ammunition that he needed for him to get prosecuted as being the responsible party for the Ferguson riots and national riots and everything else. But he walks free today. Uh, and, and we forget there's, that. Are you saying there's a little bit of a double standard here? There's Mike? a huge double standard. You know, it's, <laughs> It's uh, people get so caught up. You know, I always say, don't whatever the news story is for the first 48 hours, it's going to change. Right. But, but here's the thing is the, the sensationalistic headline always gets all the exposure. And then the, when that gets recanted later, that doesn't get equal exposure. So going all the way back, I, I hate, uh, unfortunately all the, this, the, the most common news manipulation always seems to revolve around cases that involve race, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So, you know, going all the way back to the Trayvon Martin, when uh, NBC knowingly edited the 911 call. And it, even today, if you ask somebody about that case, they will, they will quote that 911 call as if it is, was unedited. Because, you know, they got the sensationalistic part, but most people don't have the patience like you and I do to actually sit down and watch an entire trial. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, going, going way back, I've always, I've always been one of those people that when these things go to trial, I watch the trial and, uh, you know, I, and I watch it from the point of view of, you know, what would I be thinking if I was a juror in this trial? And most people don't do that because they just, they don't have the time. They don't have the patience. So they're still clinging to the talking points from that first 48 hours and they won't let that go. Um, you know, and, and for that reason, you know, they, you know, st you know, pe still people still think hands up, don't shoot was a thing, even though it was not a thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so many interesting things and, and, um, I, I don't want to speak to it just yet. Cause I think we're actually going to be doing a live or not a live, but we're going to do a round table with experts on the, um, the uh, the Potter trial and conviction and stuff like that because um, I know just today was it today or yesterday one of the jury members came out and kind of made a statement about why they 
felt like they had to convict her or whatever. And it was very interesting from a, from mm -hmm. a legal perspective and, and from like a lot of different perspectives. Obviously I'm looking at it from a training perspective. How can we use this moving forward? So to make sure that this kind mm -hmm. of stuff doesn't happen again. Um, but one of the cases that I think is an interesting one to tie back into the active shooter thing. So the, the Michigan, the Michigan school shooting that just happened, mm -hmm. um, I think this is a positive, a net positive was that they ended up, they're actually um, prosecuting the parents of that child yeah, um, for that. And I, I think agree. with all of the shit that's happened over the last two years, I think that this is maybe that start of that shift towards, we're going to start holding people accountable for what they're doing, their actions or their inactions in, mm -hmm. in certain scenarios, because that whole thing, when you, when you start looking through that, it's like, I, I'm, there's probably, and I mean, this would be just a guess, but if you look at all of the active shooter incidents that have happened in, and we'll just use the United States as a whole in the last 20 years, the, this scenario that's just occurred with these parents probably happened with at least one or more of the others. Certainly, um, certainly did. So this is maybe that start of, if people realize like, Hey, it's just because you're, ignoring your kid or you're actively buying them a gun and they're a teenager mm -hmm. whatever yeah there's there is a level of responsibility there so that's i think that is a, a, a maybe a net positive to take out of out of this last couple of weeks yeah i i agree with you 100 percent on that and i think you know for those because you can't have it both ways right so recently in the news you know it has been all of the parents that are going to these school board meetings some of which are getting arrested thrown out of school board meetings you know the the virginia election it was a it was a huge huge topic of discussion on you know how much rights parents have to dictate what's being taught in our schools well it's a two-way street so you know if if you're going to say i'm the parent and i get to decide you also, you shoulder that responsibility. You know, you don't, you don't then get to turn around and say, well, the, the system failed my son and that's why he became uh, a mass murderer. No, no, it doesn't work that way. So, you know, you, you have, you have input, you have responsibility in this and, you know, uh, and you have a huge say in how your kids are raised, but then you bear responsibility for how they're raised as well. You can't, you can't have it both ways. You know, there was an episode uh, years ago, there was an episode of law and order that I thought was pretty interesting. And it's a, a script that probably would get rejected in Hollywood today is it was about, it was about a woman uh, who uh, basically let her baby die. So, you know, had, had a baby, uh, you know, and uh, just neglected her child and the baby died of starvation. And uh, in that episode of Law and Order, the the prosecutor, somebody asked the prosecutor, you, you're, you're really worked up about this. Why are you so worked up about this? And she said, you know, we've worked so hard for, you know, women, you know, my body, my choice. We control our own reproductive destiny. So if we're going to control our reproductive destiny, as this woman did, she decided to have that baby. Then we, we also control the we're responsible for what comes with that. And she said, and I say that as a person who is pro-choice, that this is what comes with it, is because we have that choice, that you also have the responsibility that whichever way you choose, 
you bear the brunt of that responsibility. And we need to, we as a gender need to recognize that I think was exactly what she said. And I remember watching that. And even at the time thinking, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty out there for Hollywood. And that's why I say, I don't think you probably couldn't get that script approved to get shot now mm-hmm. uh, for, for just that reason, because it's a, it emphasized personal responsibility. Um, <laughs> but, but that's, you know, that's true. You know, it, it, as a parent, you're like a car manufacturer. And if your kid is out there defective, you're responsible for that recall. You know, that's, you're responsible for doing something about that. Um, and it's, you don't get to blame the school system for it. You know, that's, this isn't the, if, if you do, then you need to accept the nanny state and you need to accept that you don't control what your kid learns. And you don't, you know, don't all of a sudden when they're 17 years old, get pissed off about all this shit you didn't know about because you were on autopilot and doing your own thing and not paying attention is, you know, you need to parent. And the fact that they are out of the house for seven to nine hours a day doesn't absolve you of your responsibilities as a parent. So take an interest in what they're teaching in school, but also take an interest into what your kids putting in their backpack when they go to school every day. And if there's a knife or a gun in there, that's, uh, that's on you. And there's really no other way to put it. And this kid's parents, you know, the fact that his mom basically laughed it off when he was looking to buy ammo during class, you know, and things of that nature, it's, that's, is that's bullshit. You know, that's they there, there's a huge amount of responsibility. And I've seen some people on the right trying to push back against this, right. That they're saying, Oh, this is, this is a, this is a slippery slope. Well, I don't think it's a slippery slope. You know, it's when, when my, when my kids or my, when my nephews or my sons are in this house, all of my guns are locked up and I know exactly where they are. And this is with nephews that have been raised around guns and I know aren't going to do anything stupid. And my kids, the only thing they're, they're scared of the hand of God and me. And, and I know that they wouldn't do anything stupid, but you know, kids do stupid things. And I know that cause I was one once. Right. So, so the guns are locked up when they're here. Now, if one of them says to me, Hey dad, you know, can we take out your 45? I want to, I want to practice, you know, uh, taking it apart and clean it. Sure. I'll let you clean my guns. I'll get it out. And under my supervision, you'll do just that. But none of my, my, neither one of my sons, even my 20 year old, neither one of them touches a firearm without my supervision. And there's no way in hell, either one of them would get one out of this house and, and take it to school with them. That just mm-hmm. could never happen. It's in, completely inconceivable. Well, you know, it's funny though. It's, you know, obviously there's, there's a huge discrepancy. Um, People think for some reason, there's this narrative that, well, if you're, uh, you know, military veteran or whatever, you're, it's like guns are, it's a gun culture. So there's, you always got your family, let your kids have guns and you teach your kids to shoot. It's like, Hey, listen, yeah, absolutely. We'll teach our kids to shoot and how to use them, but use them responsibly. But I don't think you'll find anybody who is more careful with weapon safety mm-hmm. than a veteran. <laughs> like, yeah, for the, for the most part, find somebody. Yeah, for the most part, I think that is true. And that's, you know, both. So both of my sons have an AR. OK, I, there's there's two AR. There's I'm not going to tell you how many ARs are in my gun cabinet, but two of the ARs that are in my gun Three. cabinet. One for each of them and one for you, right? Three. Yeah. We're going to talk about the two. There's two, <laughs> AR, two of the ARs that are in my gun cabinet. One belongs, air quotes, to my oldest, and one belongs to my youngest. That doesn't mean they get to take them off and do what they want on their own. That doesn't mean when 
It doesn't mean that it, when, when they show up, I hand it to them and it's theirs for the weekend. It means that uh, you know, they go to the range and this is the gun that you're going to have. And this is the gun that you're going to have. And you're going to use them under my supervision. And you're going to use them properly. And then when we get home, you're, you're going to be responsible for, for cleaning and maintaining it. And you're going to do that under my supervision as well. Um, but you know, it's when people say that it's years ago, I posted a picture of me and my sons, all three of us at the range. And somebody was like, Oh, you, you let your kids have ARs. I'm like, well, I let it's theirs in quotes, but I control it. You know, it's not like, it's not under their bed. You know, it's not in their, they don't keep it in a, in a gun case in their closet. I control that. And that's, you know, that's part of being a responsible gun owner. Um, because I would feel that if one of, if one of my sons went off half cocked and did something crazy with a firearm, I do feel that the responsibility for that ultimately falls back on me and my abilities as a parent and, you know, and, and my, the way that I approach gun safety. And there's just, in my mind, there's just no getting around that. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's, it's interesting. Um, well, I can tell you how many ARs I have now. Um, thanks to our government. And that answer is zero because mm. um, we can't have them anymore. That doesn't mean I don't, we can't have pistol caliber carbines and other types of things, but um, it's, it's, that's another whole discussion. And I've had this a few times with people, but it's like, if you think that you're going to restrict people from being able to do bad things to people by taking away just like ARs, you've obviously never seen like a Benelli semi-automatic shotgun. Right. <laughs> so I don't know what you're, I don't know. It's like where you're coming up with these arbitrary ideas. Um, and it's funny, I don't know if you knew this, but we, when our government put out this ban on AR and then they banned like 1500 models, <laughs> um, they forgot um, for the most part, they forgot bullpups. So mm-hmm. like IWI, so like the Tavor and stuff, we can still mm-hmm. get those. Like, it's like, it's like they, whoever was on the committee to put this thing together, it was, uh, it was just a cluster from start to finish, but anyways. Well, what's, what's funny is in, in the reason that your government had to ban specific models is because when when you try to do it the other way, you know, we're going to ban, you know, it, it can't have, uh, so, you know, the California ban or the Clinton era ban, right? It can't have a pistol grip. It can't have a bayonet lug. It can't have a, you know, a flash hider. So they're basically, they're banning cosmetic things that are common to these style of, of weapons. Right. And basically when you do that, you're admitting that the only difference between, uh, you know, a, a Ruger 223 magazine fed, uh, rifle and an AR, the only difference is cosmetic. Like that's, that's it. It's, they're just cosmetic differences. So then you're admitting that. So then the end around to, to not get caught in that loophole is you ban it by specific models. But the, the problem with that is there's new models coming out all the time. So, you know, it's, there's, there's mom and pop level, you know, people, there's people building ARs, uh, you know, in, in machine shops in their backyard. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can't, you can't have, it's another one of those, you can't have it both ways type things. Right. Yeah. So you're, you're either, you're either admitting that you're just banning purely cosmetic shit because it looks scary or you're banning it model by model. And then you better be prepared to update that list every two months. Right. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's a complete cluster up here. I mean, technically the law hasn't still gone through yet. So, um, 
we have there's like a there's a period a grace period to do it and it's probably going to get repealed who knows what's going to happen honestly um but uh it sucks it sucks to be yeah. uh to be honest with you but we'll make do that's why i come down and hang out with guys like you in texas where yeah, man i can like shoot you know pigs out of helicopters and stuff damn straight you can right that's yeah. the fun stuff yeah. um my, one thing I do want to talk about, Mike, is um, some health and wellness stuff and, and resiliency. And so mm -hmm. two reasons. One, because I think it's super important all the time to talk about it. And two, um, because I also want to talk about your new book that okay. you have. Um, and so let's 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 maybe let's talk about the book first and then maybe let's just break down some core components of it. So um, just want to let everybody know what the book is and, and kind of what was the inspiration behind writing it. Okay. Yeah. So I wrote a, a book that's available it's on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, uh, walmart.com, Goodreads, pretty much any place that you may, may be buying books online, you can get it. Uh, the title of the book is Honed, Finding Your Edge as a Man Over 40. And uh, the impetus for writing that was uh, even before I started my company, Graybeard Performance, which is of course, you know, a, a supplement brand that's that, that's focused on helping dudes over 40, you know, continue to be savages and kick ass. Even before that, uh, just because of my podcast and because of, you know, my social media presence, I was always getting hit up with questions from guys. Hey, doc, you know, I just just started listening to your podcast or I just started following you. I think it's awesome. I'm right around your age. I've been thinking about getting into martial arts. I've been thinking about getting into CrossFit. I've been thinking about you know, you know, buying my first carbine, whatever. Um, so I, I found myself dispensing a lot of advice uh, in direct messages online, in comments section, sections and social media and via emails. And a lot of it ended up being kind of retreads of the same stuff. Like, hey, what should I be eating? You know, how often should I be working out? What, what do I do? I can't get enough sleep. What do I do about getting enough sleep? What supplements do you take? Um, so I was retreading a lot of this information again and again, and I had, it, it's, this is how dense I am. I actually thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if I had all this, you know, if I just wrote this all down one time and then everybody, every time somebody emailed me, I just sent them a link and said, the answers to all your questions are here. I thought that, and then like an idiot, I didn't think of that the logical next step in that is why don't I put it all in a book? <laughs> that didn't that didn't occur to me until I was talking to a book publisher and I was talking about my my brand Graybeard Performance and he said uh well have you thought about writing a book that you know would kind of be centered around that centered around you know helping guys out who want to be fucking savages and you know want to want to get in the training room and just you know tear it up who want to go and do PR Olympic lifts who, you know, want to do the tactical games or a Spartan race. I said, you know, that's, I've actually kind of already written that book because I've in, in coming up with my supplements, I have reams of data on what I came up with on supplements. Um, I have a long history of insomnia and sleep issues. So I have done all the research into how to get enough sleep. I did had to do my own research into diet and nutrition. I did my own research into fitness programs. Um, as I've gotten older, I've had to figure out, you know, why things change when it comes to getting older. So the framework of the book was already there. So when I sat down to actually write it, it really only took me all told with editing and everything really only took me about six months 
to, to write the book. And, and basically what it is, is, is I wrote it. Um, it's for the, the completely out of shape person who has, doesn't even know where to start. It's for them or it's for the person that's already doing stuff that works pretty well for them. And they just want to tweak maybe specific areas. Maybe they need help. Maybe they haven't quite figured out how to do their macros and nutrition, or they haven't quite figured out the recipe for sleep, or they don't know. I had a, a former, uh, former professional athlete who read the book and said, I have a whole chapter on health maintenance. And they're like, wow, I didn't know any of that. Like I haven't been to see a doctor other than getting a fight physical. I haven't been to see a doctor in 20 years. So now because of your book, I'm going to make all those appointments. I'm going to get my eyes checked. I'm going to get my flu vaccine and my shingle shot and, and get this mole that's changing shape looked at, you know, because of your health maintenance chapter, I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to get my colonoscopy, uh, scheduled. So it, it, it's really for anybody. And it's, it, it's, you know, it's written primarily the target audience is guys over 40, but guys as young as 26 have read the book and told me, you know, you've given me a roadmap that I can start following right now. And I had a, a woman who's 61 years old, read it and say, you know, everything that you say about nutrition and supplements, I'm taking to heart and everything you say about, you know, in your recovery chapter, I'm totally taking that to heart. I'm not going to work out the way you do. Um, and some of the other stuff I'm not going to do the way you do, but there's a lot of useful information. So it's, it is for people that are younger than 40. Um, it's for people, you know, as, as old as their sixties and seventies, and it's for either gender. Although, you know, I, I wrote it as, as a middle-aged guy who was having to keep up with operators, uh, on into my late forties on deployment. Um, I wrote it from that angle, from that perspective. Um, but it's really for anybody. Yeah, no, I lo I can't wait to get my hands on it and read it. Um, obviously, I think like it'll fall in line with a lot of what I'm going through. I'm not quite forty. I'm almost there. I'm not quite there yet. Um, and uh, I just I did a I did a post on LinkedIn. Um, I think about a month ago, three weeks ago maybe. Mm -hmm. um, we started. My wife and I decided to start. Um, she, well, she wanted to. We wanted to both lose a lot of weight coming mm -hmm. up into the new year. Cause I've put on, I don't know how many pounds over the last two years. Um, and, and in the post, I basically, I made it very clear. Like I would love to blame this on old uncle COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not, that's not the case. It was just, right. I was just being lazy. I wasn't watching what I was eating. Um, and you know, you get used to like, Oh, I'm always work. I'm working and okay, well I got to get this next debt, hit this next deadline. So I'll put off the gym today. And then, Next deadline, I'll put off the gym today. And then before you know it, you're six months without ever having done anything. Um, and for me, we started getting back into the gym. I had a lot of stuff that happened where I actually went and got all of my, um, I got my blood checked. I got um, all my levels checked on everything. Turned out I was like, my testosterone had like bottomed out. Like it was at like nothing. Hmm. Um, so I uh, got on TRT, which is a, freaking game changer by the way oh yeah i've been i've been on it since 2012 game changer yeah. like when i got back so i got on that and i was on it for i didn't want to do anything like i didn't want to be like okay i'm going to start eating right and start trt and start the gym and do everything on the same day because i was like that's probably not gonna go very well so i kind of we started with the trt then into the diet and then about two weeks in we i got our gym set up in the garage um and nothing crazy but some free weights some adjustable dumbbells basic machine that kind of stuff um and 
about a weekend, I made this post because I just felt compelled because the amount that I had changed just my mood mm-hmm. from going to the gym for the week, um, I felt like a completely different person. Um, and it was in it, like to a point where I realized I kind of had this like light bulb moment where it's like, what the fuck have I been doing with my life for the last two years? When all it took mm-hmm. was a little bit of discipline to put all the pieces mm-hmm. in order and just fucking go and hit a workout and not like, it's not like I do anything crazy. I'll do like a, an hour. Mm-hmm. Right. But that it was a game changer for me. Um, and I, I literally made this post cause I, we talk a lot on our podcast and on the eyelet stuff about mental health and resiliency and how big of a role fitness plays, um, how big of a role sleep plays in that. Um, and like, like all the points that you had just made, um, how much fitness plays a role in your ability to sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, all of these things, it's such a huge, um, I think it's one of those things where the smallest change in that can make a huge change when it comes to your mental health. Um, and so I love the fact that you basically put out a whole book about it. I'm excited to read it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny. You talk about the, the, the change that occurred just from, you know, the discipline to, to go in and spend an hour in the gym. And I talk in the fitness chapter, I talk about, you know, it's to me, uh, 45, 40, there are workouts that I'll do that are shorter than 45 minutes. I have some, some hit routines that I do that are only 30, but typically if I'm doing a standard strength and conditioning routine, 45 minutes to an hour 30, if I'm over an hour 30, that means I probably been sitting around on my ass and talking and not, not really working out. And if it's shorter than 45 minutes, like I had a, I had a workout early this week that, uh, my wife and I went to the gym together and I finished it like 40 minutes. So I got on the uh, assault bike for an extra five and it's like, no, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to go at least 45 and she's not done yet. Anyway, she's got to do D one D two. So, uh, I've got five minutes to kill anyway. So I'm going to do another five minutes on the assault bike. But the, in the second chapter of my book, I talk about uh, a mindset shift into what I call becoming the warrior athlete that if most people look at fitness in one of two ways, they either look at it as a, as a hobby. And if it's a hobby, then it's negotiable. It's completely negotiable, right? Cause it's, yeah, you dabble in it. You know, it's, uh, if I just showed up, I feel pretty good. You know, I, well, I worked out, I went to the gym twice last week. And so I'm doing better than people that didn't only went once or not at all because it's a hobby. You know, it's something that I'm dabbling in. Right. So that's one way to look at it. And then the other way to look at it is that it's an obligation that, you know, I have to, I have to get my workout in. It's, uh, you know, and then it's this thing that's hanging over your head. You're almost doing it under duress. Mm -hmm. And and so neither one of those is the right answer. You have to embrace it as a lifestyle. And, you know, the lifestyle of a warrior athlete is this is my mission. Every day that I get up, I'm going to be a healthier and better version of myself today than I was yesterday even if I was only able to squeeze in 20 minutes or, you know, it's, it was, it's better than nothing, or maybe I couldn't squeeze in a workout at all, but I still, I still was cognizant about what I ate. And I also dialed down my, my total calorie intake because I wasn't as active. So once you embrace the lifestyle of a warrior athlete and that's your mission, then you start to, you develop uh, really a love for it and, and a passion for it. And it, and it becomes a part of who you are and it doesn't feel like an obligation. Um, it's just, again, it's just, it's like anything. It's like brushing your teeth every day. 
Um, it's, you know, it's like putting your socks on before you put your shoes on it, it, it's part of who you are. And, and also you're not falling into the trap of, well, I'm dabbling in it as a hot, I've got a gym membership and, and I got, and I get a t-shirt from them every year around Christmas as a sign of appreciation for, for paying however many dollars a month, even though I'm not really using it. Uh, you know, that's the hobby mentality. So once people break through that and, and they, they embrace, embrace that warrior athlete mentality. Um, I think it, I think it's a game changer. Like you said, you know, where I think my shift came, um, was you hear a lot of people saying like, if you're going to make a big change or do something like you have to do it for yourself, you have to do it for yourself first. And, mm -hmm. and I always heard that. And for some reason, like that never hit with me. I'm like, I don't get it because for me, my shift chain, mine came when I was sitting there and I'm, uh, like I have four small kids. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, I know that we have like a history of heart problems in our family and all this kind of stuff. And I, we all know the family medical history stuff. And, and I'm sitting there and I have a, I know some people that are around my age that are having some specific significant medical issues right now and stuff like that. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, I want to be around for the next 40, 50 years for my kids. And so that for me was my driving factor. It wasn't about me. It was that. And then as I look back on it now and I'm introspective of it, when I was in the military, I never worked out for me. I worked out for my team, for the, the mm -hmm. platoon, for the people, the guys that were next to me. When I was right. when I was a platoon commander, I didn't work. I didn't go run every day because I fucking love running because I hate running. Mm -hmm. I hate running with a fiery passion that I can't even express in words. But I went running every day because I owed it to my platoon to be able to 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 be there for them. Mm -hmm. And so, and same thing when you played sports whether it was baseball or football or basketball, whatever it was, you, it was a team thing. And I, I realized that for me, it's about the team aspect. It's not about the individual aspect. So I had to shift my mindset to saying, this isn't about me. I'm not getting healthy and staying healthy for me. I'm getting healthy and staying healthy for my family, which mm -hmm. is my team. Um, and that was my, my core mindset shift. Now that may not be for everybody, but that was kind of one of those things where I kind of had to be introspective of it and, and, and figure out where my motivation was really coming from. Yeah. Finding your why is, is, is pretty huge, you know, and it's, uh, it, it, everybody has a different why, you know, it, it, but, but finding that, and then, uh, you end up with, uh, in, in one of the later chapters I talk about, cause I talk about the importance of, of a tribe, uh, for accountability. And I also talk about, you know, there's, there's, you have two different types of motivation and then you have discipline and, you know, we've all heard, okay, when motivation fails, discipline has to take over. Like I wasn't motivated to go to the gym today, but I was disciplined enough that I went to the gym today. But uh, you also need to look, sometimes I might not be motivated and I might not be disciplined either. I, I might, because you, you have to be just motivated enough for the discipline to kick in, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a complete lack of motivation, then discipline's going to go out the window in a lot of cases. So you can also look towards what we call external motivation. And the external motivation is that's peer pressure. That's the pressure to perform your job, to be in shape for your platoon, to be in shape for your kids, to, to want to meet your grandkids and to throw the ball around with your grandkids someday. That's, that is a level of external motivation that you can tap into as well. So uh, all three of which I think are important. You know, some days I am motivated. I can't wait to get in the gym and sweat other days. I'm not motivated, but I'm disciplined. And then still other days I'm neither motivated 
nor disciplined, but I know I've already gone two days without working out and on my fitness app that I'm on with all of my tribe members, if I go three days without working out, they can see that I haven't worked out in three days and I'm going to start to catch shit from them because I haven't worked out. Or, uh, We've got, you know, SWAT quals coming up and I've got, you know, I've got to do the fitness test. Uh, and that's, you know, serves as an external motivator that I've got to get in there and kick myself in the ass and do it. So um, I encourage people to tap into all three of those things. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's funny you say the SWAT thing. So um, one of the things that one of the partners here that, for ILED is OTAP. So the Ontario Tactical Advisory Body, they're kind of like an NTOA arm up, mm-hmm. up north here in Canada. Um they're hosting their in-person event in May. And so I was just there. I was uh, training with uh, Toronto ETF and a lot of the tag teams in Ontario for this event earlier, a couple months ago. Um, but it, there was nothing physical about it. But this event that's in person in May, um, there's like a fitness challenge at the beginning. And then there's a bunch of like live range stuff and all stuff. And I'm going there and they're expecting me to participate. And I'm like, I'm, I'm also hyper competitive, right? So I'm like, there's no way I'm walking into there mm-hmm. and like being the worst yeah. <laughs> like you know what i mean like yeah i would be so demoralized i would just so i'm like i can't so again those but again so usually i'm motivated to for like those reasons where it's like as selfish of a a, a motivation as that is it's like i want to be the best and, and so um and I, I know that's something that i know you can attest to as well because i oh, think yeah. you and i are a lot of the same in that is you know i there's i don't like being second in anything it happens and i'm okay with it when it does but as long as you put the effort in, right? Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. that's kind of one of those things. Yep. It's uh, you know, the competitive streak uh is is a good thing when it's tempered properly. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> right. right? Yeah, you're not, you know, slamming on your kids playing touch football because you have to win every time. Yeah, or hurting your or hurting yourself too. You know, I I've, I've well, seen guys so, you know, do that. Yeah, so, so there's the other thing. So, and you'll you I know I don't know what, what you're going to say when I say it. Anyway, so um, this summer, what happened was I was golfing. I can't remember what I did, but I, I thought I just um, like I strained my wrist or, or something. Um, six months later, I still have massive issues. Um, and I'm pretty sure I have an MRI next week, but I'm pretty sure what I did was I tore. I, I had a, a, a grade three tear of my uh, SL, SL ligament something mm-hmm. lunar oh like, yeah right in the middle of yeah, my yeah. wrist because mm-hmm. i can't bend or move my i haven't been able to move it or bend it for six months so every time i'm in the gym i just like tape the shit out of it yeah um but they're like yeah they're probably they're like we'll probably need to go in there and do uh like a, a tendon graft and throw some pins in there and i'm like well how long is this going to take to rehab they're like i don't know six months and i'm like Fuck. yeah <laughs> oh yeah son of a bitch. yeah that's a that that sucks, <laughs> oh, dude. The worst, the worst. Well, hey, on the on the on the light side of it though, I haven't been able to. So our our jujitsu gyms have been pretty much shut down mm-hmm. since like for like almost two years now. Some are up and running, but there's still crazy restrictions on them. Um, so haven't been able to get into a gym. So if that was if I was training every day doing that, um, and like the, I think that would be a different story because. I don't think there's any way I could be doing that kind of training with, with this wrist injury. There's no way it would happen. Yeah. About, uh, not quite a year ago, I was having some really bad issues with my thumb, uh, to where it was basically, I was in constant pain, constant pain. Uh, 
and uh, went to a hand specialist. He did some x-rays. It, it come to find out it was a, I, I had a combination of uh, bad genetics and kind of the way that my, my hand is put together, uh, an old injury from when I was 12 years old, and then uh, getting old on top of that and, and, and miles of use uh, on top of that. So the three things converged for this kind of perfect storm that I was just in constant pain. And, uh, the good news is I got a steroid injection and, uh, it went away and I've had zero issues for about the last seven months, uh, since then every now and then I'll get like a little twinge, but for the most part it's, it's gone. Cause I was literally constantly like when, when I wasn't doing anything, I was holding on to my thumb cause that was my, my position of comfort and going to jujitsu every night was just absolutely excruciating. Um, I'm having issues now. Uh, I, there is a hip replacement at some point or a hip resurfacing in my future. And I recently got a, a steroid injection this month and I've been taking it easy on jujitsu. I went to uh, a couple of gi classes early in the month and I've, and I've been to a few no gi classes this month, but for the most part, like I, I didn't, uh, I haven't, I went to one no gi class this week and I didn't, I'm skipping both of the gi classes this week just to give my hip a little more time, uh, to, to get back, uh, to a higher percentage of movement, uh, because I was, it just so happened that my hip was bothering me. And then while it was bothering me, it seemed like every time I go to class, like, okay, we're working on closed guard today. We're working on guard breaks today. Uh, now we're doing, we're doing triangle choke. It was like everything that's bad for your hip. We were working right. on. So I ended up like I was limping constantly. So I'm, I'm trying to give myself a break so I can kind of recalibrate and come at the new year kind of reinvigorated. But, uh, but it's, and that's another key. And, and I talk about that in the book too, is one of the biggest keys, especially as we get older is recognizing the value in rest and recovery. And that sometimes uh, taking a day off from training is actually more beneficial and helps you out a lot more. And this was reinforced. We, we, we were, we're lucky enough here in Austin that, um, Gordon Ryan and, and Gary Tunin and, and John Danaher have relocated here to Austin. So I've had the privilege of taking some classes directly from John Danaher and John is only a couple of years. Uh, I don't call him John to his face. I call him professor. He's only a couple of years younger than me. And he's had some, some joint issues as well. And I asked him, I said, what's your advice for an, for an older grappler? And he said, the most important thing that you can remember is that it's okay to say no. It's okay to say no and not grapple with a specific training partner. And it's okay to say no and take a rest round. And I've kind of incorporated that, that, you know, that it's okay. I'm not, I'm not wussing out if I say, you know, I, and so some nights I will go to class and I'm like, mm, I don't like the way the hip feels. So I'll do all the training. I'll do all the drilling. It's like, okay, now we're going to do rounds. You know what? I'm not, I'm going to sit off to the side. I'm going to watch and I'm not going to do rounds tonight because you know, it's, I'm a six out of 10 pain now. And if I do rounds, I'm going to go home in an eight out of 10 pain and try to get to sleep that way. And I don't want to do that. So, uh, it really important, something I wish I would have learned at a younger age that, you know, when to, when to listen to my body and to back off. Uh, John Donaher is one of those, he is just you know, and I don't have a whole bunch of experience uh, even just listening to him, but like, obviously I've seen all the stuff that he does with like Joe Rogan and, and those mm -hmm. conversations. He is just a phenomenal mind. The yeah. just his, 
the the fact that he was what was he was like a he was a um professor right he was a yeah uh, he has a he has a phd in uh philosophy i think philosophy professor and then yeah. decides like i'm just going to drop everything and now he did like every minute of every day of his life is like jujitsu training yeah um, that's it it's just unbelievable it's yeah. it's crazy to me um i would love to if i when i get down there um i'm gonna i'll do i'm gonna that'd be great i'm gonna do stop by their gyms and see if i can even just meet the guys because they are absolutely phenomenal what they do yeah all, um, all, all of them are just amazing i mean just it's a privilege to share them out with them and to get instruction from them. just the uh the approach that they have and the way that they break things down is it's it's given me a, a completely new especially on certain positions as it applies to jujitsu it's given me a completely new outlook well i think it's really interesting too because there's a very scientific based approach um how they apply things and how they create things right and it's kind mm -hmm. of it's it's really interesting to me how they pull all the different things together to be like, hey, here's the most here's a new way to do something. And you're like, wow, I never even. OK, yeah, <laughs> here, oh, by the way, here's how you can rip someone's leg off 18 different ways. OK, yeah, great. Thank yeah, you. it's, it's amazing. It's good to know. <laughs> That's good to know. I keep telling my um, my wife that she's like, aren't you afraid when our because we have two dollars? Aren't you afraid when they're older? And I'm like, no. She's like, why? I said, because by the time they're 15, 16, they're going to be black belts. Mm -hmm. um, and if some dude or girl or whoever decides to make a move on them, um, they're going to rip their leg off and take it home with them. I'm not, I'm not going to be too concerned about it. Right. So yeah. um, I always, I always make that joke, but uh, <laughs> the, that Donaher death squad, those guys are scary, scared. Leg locks are scary. I mm -hmm. suck at them. Um, and so when people do leg locks, I get, I get, nervous um <laughs> if you uh if you're listening to this and you're a uh, a jujitsu player or anything um and you haven't checked out Greybeard performance which is mike's brand um they do supplements but they also have bjj uh rash guards they got geese um and a bunch of other stuff some uh they got some swag and stuff there too shirts and hats make sure to check them out all those links will be at the bottom of the podcast wherever you're listening to this for his podcast mind of the warrior for the uh graybeard performance for the supplements and and the entire store there everything you can get and the link to his new book um that'll also be on here so make sure to check that out buy that from amazon or wherever you buy your books uh mike brother i appreciate the hell of you taking the time and talking with me today man it's an honor to always have you on this podcast well thanks for having me on man it's a it's we always have great conversations and uh much appreciated being invited back Absolutely, dude. Well, and I'm looking forward to having you be a part of a lot of the training we're going to be doing here with ILET coming up um, in 2022 and, and just pull all that information out of your brain. Um, I love doing that. So I appreciate you taking the time and I look forward to talking to you soon, man. Stay safe. All right, brother. Thank you. You too. Join the ILET network now. Go to ILET.network. That's ILET.network. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.